is the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, showing a different side of the athletes you know and love, or maybe don't know and love, and how what happens far removed from the bright lights and the TV cameras can provide a different way to look at accomplishment. And now here are your hosts, two friends dating back to college and sports junkies their entire lives, Matt Swinney and Zach Wells. Hello, everybody. Welcome inside the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. Happy October. Hopefully the leaves are changing where you live. You're getting a change of seasons. Maybe the knives out to carve some pumpkins as your trick-or-treaters get ready on the 31st. I'm Zach Wells in Cincinnati alongside Matt Swinney in Austin, Texas. Great show today on the program. We have Brad Lidge. Longtime Major League closer with the Astros and the Phillies, most notably. He finished his career with the Washington Nationals and finished up second all-time in saves, postseason saves, to the great Mariano Rivera. And depending on what happens in this World Series, which I'm really excited about between the Tampa Bay Rays, small market, money ball, low payroll against the big market, purse string L.A. Dodgers, Kenley Jansen might overtake Brad Lidge into second place behind the great number 42, Mariano Rivera. Matt, I can't wait for the World Series tonight. Kershaw on the mound, maybe trying to exercise some of those October demons and put to rest some of that chatter that he can't pitch in the postseason. Yeah, I can't wait to see uh, the the young buck, Randy Rosarena, who broke my Astros hearts, uh, take on Clayton Kershaw. It's just going to be, to me, it's like the dichotomy, right? It, it's it's everything you just said. It's the it's the big market, small market. It's the you know upstart kid from Cuba who kind of came out of nowhere late in the season against the the wily lefty, you know, which is what Kershaw has become now. You know, first ballot Hall of Famer against you know the new generation of of young kids. And to me, it's the kind of the perfect. Um, maybe the perfect ending to this season. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think I've, I've really enjoyed about it, I th- you, you and I have talked about this on the show, has been, you know, whether or not this like expanded number of teams in the postseason, if it would water things down and this, that, and the other. Well, look at what we got. We got one seed versus one seed. And frankly, I think the two best teams in baseball are playing against each other in the World Series. And so any of that talk around, will there be an asterisk on this or anything else? Not to me. These, these, are, these are the two best teams in baseball. Yes, you could make an argument that the Yankees are up there, at least, you know, on paper with all the injuries they had. You know, I don't, I don't think that they, they really ended up there at the end of the season. But to me, if you've got the two best teams, they were going to be the two best teams over 162, in my opinion. Um, so let's get it on. I'm excited to see what happens. For my money, one of the greatest tributes to the Tampa Bay Rays was their performance in game five, an elimination game against the New York Yankees, because it really showed them being able to get over the hump. Because, you know, you've heard some knocks on the Tampa Bay Rays. Yeah, they can win in the regular season, but when you get to the postseason, do they have the horses to be able to stack up against a number one, against an elite closer? And in game five, they beat Garrett Cole and they beat Aroldis Chapman. And I don't believe they can afford either one of those guys. And they still got the better of them with, with was it Brasso who hit the home run yeah. on Chapman to be able to advance against the Astros. So I just think it's an incredibly well-run organization. They stick to their plan. Kevin Cash is going to come get the pitcher, whether it's Snell who's struggling, whether it's Charlie Morton who's throwing a masterpiece. They're going to go to their hard-throwing relievers uh, down there to close it out. And it, it's easy to say, oh, well, Kevin Cash pushed all the right buttons. If I'm a Tampa Bay Rays fan, which I'm not, I'm intrigued by how well-run the organization is. 
all I'm interested in is, is Kevin Cash consistent with his plan and the results are going to have to take care of themselves. You're going to have to live with it. And I think he sticks with his plan regardless of what the situation is. Yeah. And I think, um, so, so one, one fun uh, statistic I saw, and I can't remember who the exact players were, so somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but if you take the prorated 2020 salaries, um, the entire Tampa Bay Rays team, uh, the payroll is like $26.7 million, which is the same number as Mookie Betts and Clayton Kershaw. Just amazing, right? Like, I mean, you're talking about a 30-man roster against two guys, and, you know, they're both going to be here. And, and, and in my opinion, I don't know, like, we'll, we'll maybe get to some predictions. But, like, I think this thing's going seven. I think this is a um, – I think these two teams are very well matched. It's kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, strength on strength and weakness on weakness on both sides. Uh, you know, so to me, this is, a, this is a total coin flip of a World Series. And, you know, and I think just – part of me like I, I I hate the Dodgers I'm sorry Dodgers fans out there um Zach I don't know how you feel about the Dodgers but I just as an Astros fan maybe and like I we were talking before I grew up a Braves fan you know watching them on TBS in the Dale Murphy years and you know the Dodgers were the team to beat and so kind of grew up hating them my sister and I called them the dumb Dodgers um all the time and you know to this day I like I look at Tommy Lasorda and as much as I actually love that guy, which I really do, but I look at him and he makes me want to vomit in my mouth a little bit. So, you know, to me, this idea, I, I don't know, maybe they just gained a huge Rays fan out of me. And also I want to give the Rays some props on the, uh, on the Astros side when hurricane Harvey hit, you know, back in uh, 2017 uh, you know, the Texas and the Hute and the Astros had no home. Literally they were on the road when Harvey hit uh, they had no home to go to. And so they tried to go play some games uh, at uh, the Rangers stadium and the Rangers said no, but it was Tampa Bay uh, and the Trop who opened their doors to the Astros so they could have some home games. So, you know, there's a little bit of love in Houston for those Rays, even though they just beat us. I have no way of knowing this. But I really believe that if the Dodgers with all of that talent, you know, they made MVP and Mookie Betts. I, I have no idea how that works in Manhattan where they are able to give up Alex Verdugo and Kenta Maeda to get Mookie Betts and David Price to put two MVPs in an outfield with that payroll. And they were about to go down to the Atlanta Braves. I mean, they were teetering on the cusp of another disappointing October exit. And I think Andrew Friedman, the baseball boss in LA, maybe thought about, I don't know if he got to that point of thinking about it, of making a change. Where is Dave Roberts, great man, great leader. He was a great player. Is he the guy that's going to get us over the top? Credit LA. They've gotten to the World Series three out of four years, but is he the guy that's going to get us over the top? And I think they really showed the way they battled back that they are made of the right stuff to be champions. And it's going to be interesting to see if this year they can do it for the first time since 1988. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, 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 and I think, in my opinion, I think they do. Um, you know, I'll get us, I guess I'll get us into the prediction side. I think they do win this one. I think um, if I just look at um, up and down the lineup at some point, and, and, and I hope I'm proven wrong here, by the way, again, I will be the biggest Rays fan there is over the next week or so. But the, to me, just all those vets, all those guys who've been there before, all, you know, this moment is not going to be too big for any of them. I think, Look, I, I like Clayton Kershaw. He's got a lot of that, like, kind of F you in him. 
And I like that. And he, I think, has become, he's been around this block so many times that I just, I feel like he's going to, in some ways, as much as I hate the Dodgers, I think the world is a wrong place if Clayton Kershaw goes in the Hall of Fame without a ring. And um, you can pitch at home in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Right. And, and to me, like, just, I, I think it's time for him. You know, I think he deserves it. You know, I, I love Mookie. Um, I loved him more when he was with the Red Sox than as a Dodger. But, you know, he's been there before, right? He's, 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 he's been in the dog pile at the end. I think they're going to take some of his leadership, you know, he, as the guy who's gotten over the top. I just, to me, they've got all the pieces in place. You know, the only question probably is that bullpen, um, you know, and the Rays have made it very clear that if they can get a starter out of a game, you know, they can, they can definitely beat you. Um, but I just think that kind of wisdom and age and, you know, some of that is going to, is going to win out in the end. What do you think? Yeah. The last time the Tampa Bay Rays made it this far was 2008 when Eric Hinsky swung at a nasty Brad Lidge slide. arms to the sky and got mobbed and he's going to tell us all about his great memories with the Phillies the after party at Pat the Bats some of his incredible moments in Houston before he was traded to Philadelphia pitching in an incredible bullpen with Octavio Dotel and Billy Wagner who should be a Hall of Famer by the way and just I think Astros fans are going to love it Phillies fans are going to love it and I think baseball fans are going to really enjoy Lidge's evolution, as he explains, from a guy who went to Notre Dame to play college baseball, was last on the depth chart, had pitcher's arm, had no juice in it, and became one of the most dominant pitchers in the college game and was a first-round pick after his junior year. But I think I think Tampa wins. I you really like do. Yeah. My question is, any Major League Baseball general manager out there, who is going to trade with Tampa now? <laughs> they make incredible deals. They end up fleecing the other team. I'm not saying there's any malintent. They just end up scouting incredibly well. Arena is what a, a, a fill-in on the Cardinals deal. He is just a mash from the right side of the plate. He, he just rakes the entire game. And, and they, they had an incredible deal with uh, the Pirates that I believe brought Glasnow to Tampa. Correct. Just an incredible organization, well-run top to bottom. And I think just the model is really interesting, right, where you have player development that has to be a premium, right? You have kids that are drafted, kids that come through the minor league system, and we're going to get them until we can't afford them anymore. And then you get some guys that have that chip on their show, shoulder, the Joey Wendells of the world, the Arozarenas of the world that still have some baseball left in them, and they're going to come show you that they've got some baseball in them. And Charlie Morton was looking like just an October vet out there with his performance in the closeout game against Houston. So I think Tampa gets it done with their yeah, did you, you, you talked about the FU mentality. I think Tampa's yeah. got that top to bottom from guys that are like, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to prove what we got. Did you see uh, Randy Rosarena's comment that he uh, wanted to thank John Mazeliak, the GM of the St. Louis Cardinals, for trading him because he wouldn't be in the spot without, <laughs> without him? <laughs> you got to love it. You got to love it. Unbelievable. Yeah. Kevin Cash, you know, I, I grew up watching Cubs baseball. I know you did as well on WGN. And I followed Steve Stone, you know, now that he has gone to the White Sox. That was really bizarre. And I don't want to get too much into it, that they you know, fired Rick Renteria. But Steve Stone made the point that what separates the elite managers from the good managers is the management of a pitching staff and a bullpen. 
and you go to your best arms, you go to your confident arms, and you space everybody out. So you go to your rested arms when you need matchups and outs. And I think Kevin Cash, as a former major league catcher, really has a firm understanding of, of who has what on any particular night. And he pushes the right buttons, and he has some cats that can bring it. It's unbelievable. And what I, one of the things I love about how he manages his bullpen is, you know, in this day and age, right, it's a, you got a seventh inning guy, you got an eighth inning guy, you got a ninth inning guy, right? And that, that's pretty much how baseball is run, unless you're Kevin Cash. For him, he knows, he, he has this ability to know when outs are a premium. And to him, I think he looks at it as, I got 27 outs. So who is the best guy to get the next one out? two outs, three outs, and especially with a three batter minimum now, that that takes, you know, management of a bullpen becomes much, much more important and has a lot more um, kind of emphasis on who you bring in at what time, right? And so to me, it's almost like, I feel like he's got like this like card next to him and he's got 27 hash marks and he just crosses one out each time, right? And so to me, I love that he has instilled in his guys that there isn't, they don't really have a closer, right? They don't really have an eighth inning guy. They don't have a seventh inning guy. They have the best arm to get the next out at that given moment. And all the ego in that bullpen seems to just not matter, right? They all just know, look, I'm one of his guys. And so when he needs me, I'm going to go in the ball game and I'm going to do my job and I'm going to get outs. And if that's in if that's in the ninth inning and I get the save, awesome. If that's in the third inning, you know, because I'm backing up an opener, then cool. Because I struck out, you know, uh, Cody Bellinger, because that's, that's what we needed at that moment. And, you know, to me, it's just such an interesting way of looking at it. And I think, I think, you know, right. They were, they were the beginning of the opener idea. And now basically all of baseball has bought in on this opener idea. We've seen it throughout these playoffs all, all over the place. Basically every team has used an opener at some point because of this crazy, no travel day schedule. Um, and so to me, like this is the next I innovation. Love, by the way. So oh man. Have, I'm so glad we don't have travel days and, and yep. batting practice and media time. I'm glad let's go play. Yeah, I know. I love it too. All right, so all right, so you're you're on record for the for the Rays. I'm on record for the Dodgers. However, I, I think we I, both agree it's going deep. It's going to yeah, be a deep series. Yeah, and I'm pulling hard for the Rays. Like I hope I'm wrong. Um, all right, before we get to Lidge, can we uh, play taps for my Astros? Um, oh goodness! If anybody wants to send Matt Swinney a sympathy card about his Astros bowing <laughs> out in the American League Championship Series, his phone number is five one two. Actually, no, what I do want to say about the Astros, I want to talk about a couple of things. One. Can I say something before you say your piece? Yes, of course. Incredible heart to come back from 3-0 down. That could have been a sweep. It could have been, let's get this over with. We're overmatched. We're down. And they were right there to be able to go to the World Series. And I think Dusty Baker, who I will admit, I, I... I have an incredible respect for him and a great personal affinity for him. He's a great man. I think he's a great manager. And I think that he pushed the right buttons to be able to get them to fight back. And it's a talented team. Yeah. So, so the, so, so on that note, that is one of the things I wanted to talk about is that, you know, this is a team, you know, coming off the scandal, in my opinion, they looked tight all year. 
um, especially the guys who were part of the scandal. Like, funny enough, you know, the, the guys who were raking were Kyle Tucker, Michael Brantley, you know, guys who were not there in 2017. The guys who were struggling, you know, were named Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, George Springer, you know, Carlos Correa, actually Correa was pretty good all season. You know, Yuli, like, basically never got it going all season. You know, and to me, you know, there, there's something to be said for that, right? I mean, those guys were, were clearly playing with that on their conscience. And what I found so interesting is when it came nut cutting time, you know, in the playoffs, I really thought like, you know, they came in under 500 and I thought, man, this is going to be the twins. The twins are finally going to get over the hump. They're catching this Astros team. I don't care. Yes. The Astros have more talent than the twins do in my opinion. However, I just thought that like, this is going to be the year they're going to bow out. They're going to lose the first two games and that's going to be that. And as Astros fans, we're going to just have to be okay with it. Right. And Dusty for, you know, just watching him manage in the playoffs um, you and I have talked about, like, we have some questions about Dusty's bullpen management and some of his in-game decisions. But I will tell you, one thing I learned about Dusty in these playoffs is those players love him and they want to play for him. And yeah, he just, he, he has this way, I mean, with, with some of those, with the Altuve errors, you know, of his just ability to walk out of the dugout and hug his guys and not say anything. Like, they, they love him, like, as a human being. And so I am very curious, you know, I really thought Dusty was going to be this like one year guy, you know, and that that was probably the agreement up front that he was going to come in for one year, get him through this, you know, this season, even pre pandemic, right? Like, you know, I thought it was just going to be a, let's get him through the scandal. And then we're going to kind of hire a younger, you know, newer generational guy, you know, to come in. And, you know, when they extended him mid-season, I thought, well, that's interesting. So I guess, I guess it's not a one-year deal. And now I get it. I really do. And I think that's exactly what that team needs, at least for the next couple of years, until Dusty is ready, ready to call it a career again, <laughs> you know, which he's done a couple times now. And, and you got to love it. And by, and by the way, he's still also the coolest cat in the stadium, like period, the end. Um, there's no one cooler with his, uh, you know, we haven't gotten to see him chewing on his toothpicks because he's had a mask on all the time and that's got to bother him. Right. Like I'm a little surprised he doesn't just like poke one tiny little hole in his mask just so that he can chew on the toothpick and that's it. But I was super impressed with the heart that they showed. Um, I do think that the better team at the end of the day won. I think, um, you know, as a fan, I'm proud of them that, you know, they could have folded and they didn't, um, you know, and, and the better team won, especially game seven, right. The, the race just flat out beat them. And if you're going to lose, like, that's how I want to lose. Um, and then the other thing I want to talk about is Jose Altuve. And I'm curious from a non-homers perspective, I will fully admit I'm a homer on this. He's probably my favorite player in the league. He's definitely my son's favorite player in the league. Um, coming off the scandal, you know, one of the things that I um, was concerned about was specifically Altuve, right? He, um, he is one of those guys who he really cares what people think about him as a person. He cares what his legacy is. Um, that MVP meant everything to him and it's tainted and he knows that, right? And, you know, he's this little bitty guy from Venezuela. He has an entire country, you know, pulling for him. Um, and I think he feels a lot of shame and I think he feels a lot of disappointment in himself and his teammates. 
Um, you know, funny enough, I, I know we talked about this before we came on, you know, there was the Houston, the, the Astros fan who did the thing on Twitter where he went back and listened to like every single pitch to try to figure out when the trash can was getting banged and not. And Altuve was the, was the least, you know, and, um, and Correa talked about that, you know, Altuve would get angry if somebody banged the trash can for him and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I think that that's probably all true. That said, Altuve also knows that he didn't put a stop to it. And um, I think in hindsight, he wishes that he had made a lot of different decisions. And I know a lot of people are angry at the Astros still for kind of their lack of accountability, their lack of taking responsibility and this, that, and the other. I think a lot of it is that they just can't talk about it, right? You know, whatever deal they made with MLB, like they've, they've all, or, or even just with each other, right? We're just not going to talk about it. And so Altuve can't, right? And so even if he wants to. And so I don't give him a free pass. That's not what this is about. But him coming into these playoffs and then, you know, getting the thing or the yips um, with those throws is, uh, it's funny to me. Um, and I hope, and I would never wish that on anybody. Like, that's a tough, I don't care what you feel about the player. Like, that's a, that's a tough spot to be in because it's almost uncorrectable, right? Like, it's, we saw it with Steve Sachs. I mean, it literally ended his career. And he was an all-star second baseman, you know, for many years. And I just, I'm curious, you know, it, it's a weird timing, right? And, you know, is it in his head, you know? And, and so I'm curious from your perspective as somebody who, again, not a homer, what do you feel about sort of each of those guys as individuals, right? And then, because let's be honest, there's a big difference between Altuve and say Correa, who is like owning the villain role. Um, and he, and he almost likes it. So there's a huge difference between those. And then some other guys in between. Um, I'm curious your perspective sort of on an individual basis. And then where do we go from here? um for the Astros you know going into next season obviously this season the fans weren't there they couldn't boo them they couldn't so the fans didn't get this out of their system even if some of the teams did you know and where do we go from a forgiveness perspective do they ever get there I just I'm, I'm curious you, your perspective on this now that it's all over sure let me just go ahead and say Matt alluded to it I don't care if the Astros win I don't care if the Astros lose I, I like their players I think they have a really good team but this is a totally objective point of view. I think the Astros cheating scandal is a lot like the 1972 Watergate episode where Richard Nixon was so far ahead of George McGovern and there was absolutely no need to break into the Democratic headquarters at the Watergate. They were gonna win anyway. So you can make an analogy to the Astros. This is an incredibly talented team. Why are you needing to pull this, you know, sinister nonsense with the video room and banging the trash can and it, you, you have the best lineup in the game anyway what are you doing this for I think Matt objectively the Astros got off really easy and it's not just with the commissioner the commissioner gave them immunity and they came out and played and Lunau who has gone on record as recently as last night saying I still didn't know about this scandal and I've got the 22,000 text messages to prove it and A.J. Hinch, they had to walk the plank. And that was, in my opinion, Rob Manfred's fault for not making the players take ownership for the scandals that they were a part of and that they were executing and planning. I still think that we would be able to talk a lot more readily about forgiveness and moving on if they had had to own it a little bit. I think if Jose Altuve wanted to come out and say, look, 
I won an MVP. I won a World Series. I'm from Venezuela. I got to where I am today with a lot of hard work, and now I'm being viewed as a cheater. I'm going to opt out, and it's not because of coronavirus. It's because I am I am taking and self-imposing a 60-game suspension. I am not going to take a playoff share. I'm not going to be on the stage. I'm not going to be recouping all of the benefits, the first-class travel, all of that of being a ball player, and. I would like for that to be my first step in moving on. I didn't see any of that. And I don't think any player did it. Correa didn't do it. Springer didn't do it. Bregman didn't do it. And I think the cynics in the game are more likely to say, okay, so they get off scot-free from the commissioner, the manager and general manager get fired. And that was the arrangement. But Bregman takes a playoff share. So does Springer. So does Correa. So does Altuve. And really the only dust up there was in terms of being hit by a pitch was some, nonsense with Joe Kelly at an early season game at Minute Maid Park where I don't agree with Kelly putting 196 above Bregman's head. I think that could kill a person. But really in terms of like the old school policing of the game, I thought they really got off scot-free. So in terms of forgiveness, either we're, we're totally past it and we're such a busy society that we don't even really think about it anymore, or it hasn't really even started yet in terms of the policing of the game and, and coronavirus kind of put everything on the back burner before they, you know, get fans in the stands next year. And it turns into sadly the WWE, but I think the Astros players could have taken more upon themselves to own it and to be remorseful. So, so let me ask you a question then. And I, I don't disagree with you, by the way, I think they could have owned it, but let, but in reality, so let me give you another example. So if that were the case, should Marwin Gonzalez have opted out for the Twins? Yeah. No, I think anybody who was involved in the scandal to, if we're talking about owning it, moving on and, and accepting a penalty, if the commissioner is going to let you off scot-free, and if you feel so bad, as we're thinking Jose Altuve did, that it creates the yips under the brightest lights in Major League Baseball, then, then don't take your check. Don't take your stage. Don't take your playoff share and opt out. But, but you no, see, and I think, I, think, I think a fan, no, and I think if I'm an opposing pitcher next year in 2021 who is thinking about putting one right in your ribs or between the numbers in your back, I'm like, now wait a minute. He owned it. He imposed a suspension. He said he was wrong, and we're going to play ball today. We're not going to have a big fight. Yeah, I guess, I guess my, I guess, I guess where I have a hard time with it. And again, maybe I'm just being a homer. So it's okay. You can call me out on that. And, and I'll own that. But I think where I have a hard time with it is this double standard around. So if you're still currently an Astro, then you deserve to take one between the numbers. But if you're not still currently an Astro, you don't deserve that. And so should, and should, should Dallas Keuchel have opted out? Like, because that's funny. I think, I think it's so funny. Everybody keeps like letting the pitchers off the hook. The pitchers knew about it too and said nothing. Clearly Mike Fires was the one, a pitcher was the one who did, should Mike Fires have opted out? Yeah, he should have. Cause by the way, he took his playoff share too. And yeah. he took his ring and he hasn't given that back. Should Dallas Keuchel have opted out for the White Sox? Should Marwin have opted out with the twins? Should, you know, to me, and, and then, and then talking about moving forward. So George Springer is a free agent. Now um, I don't know. It's a great I, player. I, yeah. And it, you know, he will be, he will be the biggest name outfielder, 
on the market this season, right? And so who knows where he ends up? He may end up signing a deal with the Astros. I think the Astros will do what they can to try to keep him. But I think they're also realistic that they are going to have a loaded outfield when Jordan comes back and, you know, they've got some young kids coming up, you know, that are so, – so they could let Springer walk, much like they let Garrett Cole walk. And so I guess I'm just super curious. So everyone hates Springer right now until he comes to your team. And then what are you going to do? So right. if he, if he gets signed by, Oh, I don't know the, so the Dodgers hate the Astros so much because of the Joe Kelly thing, but are they going to welcome George Springer with, oh, by the way, they're not going to sign Springer because that outfield is ridiculous, but let's just, okay. So, okay. So the Red Sox, right? <laughs> so if he ends up in Boston, you know, these are the same Red Sox who, you know, have also gotten busted for some things, like not nearly as much, but you know what I'm saying? Like to me, just this whole thing, it just seems, and, and then, the, and then I guess the other piece of it is, is if you really do believe, and I think we all do, that this did not begin and end with the Astros. Other teams were doing some things. Maybe they didn't cross the line as far as the Astros did, and that's fine, but they definitely crossed the line, right? There is a lot of smoke around a lot of teams. And so to me, you know, one of the things, so Trevor Bauer talked about it, right? That, that, you know, it was like the worst kept secret in baseball that the Astros were doing this. It's just, they couldn't catch them. Okay. So that's fine. Except that if you also as an Astro know, like if you're George Springer, and, and I don't know that he knew this, but like if you're George Springer and you say, yeah, but I know that the Yankees were doing this, that, and the other. Yeah, it was less than what we were doing, but they were still doing it. We know that the Red Sox were doing this, that, and the other. Then why is it on you to take your lumps? Look, you made a deal with the commissioner. You, if, if you don't like the deal that was made with the commissioner, that's not on me. Like that's on the commissioner. You as players, if you don't like that, then take it to the commissioner's office, take it to the players association. But like we made our deal. I'm sorry if you don't like the deal that was negotiated, but that's not on us. And by the way, there were other teams doing this. So why is it totally up to, you know, these guys to 100% take the blame for something that was probably going on. And if you knew that it was going on, which I think some of these players probably do know what was going on with other teams. Look, it's a small little fraternity. They all know each other. And again, maybe not to the extent that the Astros did it. Why is it on only the Astros to take that blame? And and I think, yeah, fine. But like, and, and, and that, and that's fine. And I get that. And I get that, you know, they went too far and look, I'll own that as a fan. And that's something that I have to reconcile as a fan. Right. And that I have to talk to my 10 year old son about, and trust me, that's not fun. And trust me, it's not fun that Altuve has to look 10 year old fans in the eye and know that they know this about him. Right. And that's not fun for any of those guys. And I know that, you know, it sounded like a cop out when Manfred said, you know, the biggest punishment is these guys are going to have to live with it for the rest of their lives. And I know that a lot of people are like, Oh, come on. That's not a real pun. Yeah, it is. It is a real punishment. And they, they know what they did. They're still human beings. Um, you know, and so to me, like, you, look, go boo them. That's okay. I get it. You know, if you want to, if, if your way of doing it is by sticking fastballs between the numbers, I guess that's your way of doing it. I think that's stupid, but whatever. Um, you know, that's how the game has always been. But to me, I just think at some point, and, and maybe that was my question is, is when does it all finally end? 
you know, is it going to require these guys to just retire, you know, and so that we're going to deal with this for the next 10 years while they all, you know, kind of slowly in their careers, or is it, or is it some point, you know, the next thing's going to happen and we're just going to get over it? Well, I mean, you, I guess you can go and ask, you know, Barry Bonds when he's going to be forgiven or yeah. Alex Rodriguez when he's going to be forgiven or Roger Clemens when he's going to be forgiven. They're steadily climbing up the ballot, you know, in terms of their Hall of Fame traction. Mark McGuire, when's he going to be forgiven? Yeah. It's just a matter of owning it. And I don't believe the Astros have owned it. And I no, I, I, I just believe that your conversation with my man Cash and your 10-year-old son would be a lot more powerful if you could say, look, he screwed up. They all screwed up. The principal of the school said, oh, as long as you tell me the truth, you get to go back to class without a suspension. And they're like, no, that's wrong. That's completely wrong that we get off scot-free. We're suspending ourselves and we're giving up our paycheck and our stage and any playoff bonuses and all of the perks of being a major league player and all of the adulation. And we're going home for the year. I think it's a lot easier conversation to have in terms of owning it and moving forward. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I we disagree. Wanna, That's okay. yeah. no, 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 I, I don't even know that I disagree with you, Zach. I mean, honestly, like I, I, I don't know that you're wrong. I just, I want to, I want to point out the double standard that sure. I don't think it was ever, I don't think it was ever talked about that Marwin Gonzalez should take one between the numbers because he's on the twins now. Well, and there's a very good chance that the major league baseball hall of fame has accepted steroid users into the fraternity. It's almost guaranteed, right? But you're not going to, it, it just is a bad look for the guys that were tied to the scandal to say, oh, but he did it and he's in. It's just a bad look because you're not owning your own behavior. That's fine. That's fine. I'm just saying that, you know, if if it's other players around the league who are angry, then they should be, then why did the Twins welcome Marwin Gonzalez into their, and I'm not trying to pick on Marwin, you know, why did the White Sox welcome Dallas Keuchel in? Why did, you know, a bunch of those guys have moved around. And so in, in this next team that signs George Springer, which may be the Astros, but if it's not the Astros, they're going to welcome him with open arms because he can help them win. And to me, that, it, but, but that is the two-faced side of this that bothers me. So the mm -hmm. second he's not wearing those Astros colors anymore, he's all of a sudden off the hook. That's what bothers me. And for me, kind of detached from the whole situation, I don't make a distinction between current and former Astros. I think anybody in the scandal should have sat down, including Fires. Good. Well, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that because, you know, what, what, that is not what I have heard on a national level in this conversation. It has always been whenever – That makes no sense. But whenever players are mentioned, they only ever mention the guys who are still currently Astros. That's it. Yeah, that they doesn't... never they never talk about the guys who aren't anymore. Right. Including Fires. former Astros, former Astros, Brad Lidge, an incredible closer with Houston, went on to Philadelphia, turned in that magical 2008 season where he was a perfect, I believe, 41 for 41. Saves converted with save opportunities. Matt, did you know that 2008 season I was in Cincinnati where he almost blew one and he got out of it? That ended it. up being significant later in the year where he was perfect even in the playoffs in terms of his saves. Great guy. I was a high school classmate of Brad's at Cherry Creek High School outside of Denver. Here's our conversation with Brad Lidge. All right, we are super pumped today on the Victory Away from the Venue podcast to welcome in a former classmate of mine in high school. We'll get to that in just a little bit. And a guy who went on to have a tremendous baseball career 
first at the University of Notre Dame and then with the Houston Astros, the Philadelphia Phillies, the Washington Nationals before he retired. He hung up the cleats with the distinction of becoming the second ranking postseason saves leader behind Mariano Rivera. I speak of Brad Lidge. Lights out Lidge. Brad, it's great to have you on the podcast, man. How are you? Uh, Zach, I'm doing great. Good to be with both you guys. And uh, yeah, second to, to the great uh, Mariano Rivera, but uh, many, many saves behind him in second place. So I, you know, I'll, I'll happily take that distinction and we don't, we just won't have to talk about the separation between him and I in that save category. Because well, to be Mariano fair. Rivera, he's got, uh, of course, fittingly, 42 postseason saves. Because why wouldn't? Why would he have any other number? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and, and, he, and he pitched an entire season in the postseason, right? So I mean, there, there's that too. So Brad, I think you're good. You're you're just fine in second place there. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. I'm happy with that. Brad, you know, baseball. While we're on the topic of Mariano, baseball is such a crazy game in terms of numbers. You know, Pete Rose, 4,256 career hits. You could have 200 hits every year for 21 years and not catch him. How insane is it as a former closer to contemplate that Mariano Rivera saved four full seasons worth of games? Full, full seasons, not full wins, full seasons. Um, you know, four full seasons worth of, uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Like 162 times four. Yeah. 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 Oh man. Yeah. That's what, well, that's an interesting way to look at it. In fact, I had never looked at it that way to hence the confusion on that, but I mean, it really, it really does blow your mind. And I think, you know, we talk about, you know, to your point, some records that just seem impossible that Pete Rose's hit record, obviously no one's going to get, um, the Scions win record or anything like that. Ricky Henderson's stolen base record, but I think sometimes people forget, and uh, I think they'll remember it more and more as we progress over the next couple of decades, how impossible it would be to catch a Mariano Rivera, you know, career save leader. And amazingly, Trevor Hoffman was not that far behind, but we will never see uh, anything the likes of which uh, Mariano did again. I am 100% sure of that. Uh, closers are used differently these days anyway, but I think, you know, when you can clearly define the closing position, when you can clearly define any position and say, there's one person that nobody would disagree with that was the best uh, who's ever played that position. There's always an argument. There's always a debate with every other position. But as a closer, as a reliever, there's no debate. Marian Rivera is the greatest in the history of baseball. And I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone will ever even approach his record uh, from here on out uh, for, for baseball eternity. Yeah, agreed. So, uh, Brad, but along those lines, you're one of the few relievers in Major League history to get a first place MVP vote. What was that like? Yeah, I, yeah, I was. Uh, that was pretty cool. I was, uh, you know, somebody told me that, and I, I couldn't even really believe it. Actually, at the time, I was, I was pretty surprised. Um, you know, it, it was, it was a super honor, and I, I, you know, I think when I look back and and you know, just being able to get your job done, that was always first and foremost to me, and. And obviously some seasons in my career, some seasons it was easier to do than others. Um, you know, there was always a, that job always came with a lot of uh, drama and it was never easy. Even when you're going through great stretches, you really got to grind and focus on what you're doing. So um, to kind of have that, uh, you know, that season that I had in 2008, kind of have the culmination of those things. Um, and I think you're referring to 2008. I don't think I, yeah, uh, yeah I don't think I <laughs> would have sniffed one of those in any other season. But uh, in 2008, it was really just a kind of great, you know, teammates around me a great ball club a great defense behind me and I think anybody that gets anything uh, you know close to an MVP vote will tell you that they uh, they needed a lot of help along the way as I certainly had a lot in 2008. And one of the iconic images from that season and really in major league postseason history Brad <laughs> you throw in the slider retiring Hinsky 
and then come into your knees and put your put your arms to the ceiling and to, to the sky rather you know Carlos Ruiz comes out and then the mob scene is on now that you have the benefit of being a retired player looking yeah. back on that group of guys that season what stands out in your mind as just really special about the Philadelphia Phillies of 2008 that won the World Series well, I think there was a lot of guys. So, so first of all, you've already got a, a great team of guys kind of on their way up, uh, proving that they are, you know, star players and wanting to be in that spotlight. And then you had, you know, a group of, of several of us coming over, myself, even a guy like Jeff Jenkins, uh, Jason Worth finally got a starting opportunity. So guys with maybe a, a little chip on their shoulder, maybe something to prove. And I think when you kind of mix those two things, and then at the end of the day, you had a clubhouse with great leadership, nobody was really, uh, you know, a 10-year veteran superstar at that point where they were just, you know, uh, or, or maybe somebody that, that wasn't uh, as talkative to the other players on the team. Everyone in that clubhouse, yes, even Chase Utley was pretty talkative at that point. Now, maybe it wouldn't be to the media so much. Maybe it would just be with his teammates on the plane. And even that would be limited to a few guys. But he was more talkative at that stage. And, um, I think everybody got along with each other and really pulled for each other. Um, like I said, you know, we had a lot of really, really good players on the team, but nobody was kind of the guy that was like, oh, I'm heads and tails above everyone else. Uh, I'm the man. Everyone was kind of trying to pull each other up. And, and I really haven't been on a team. You know, obviously been on some great teams in Houston prior to that. But there were some, uh, you know, kind of interesting dynamics, as there always are, with, with superstar veterans and young guys coming up. The Phillies just, it really felt like everyone was on the same level. Uh, and I think that was it. That was a really big part of our success. Certainly in the bullpen, uh, we had great uh, camaraderie down there. And I know that, uh, you know, looking back for me, that was maybe the easiest year of my career. I say it was always hard. It was always hard. But that year was the easiest for me in my career because the guys in front of me, uh, Ryan Madsen, uh, uh, Chad Durbin, J.C. Romero, Scott Ayer, Clay Condry, they every time they went in, they got their job done. So I never really had to pitch in the eighth inning. In fact, if I went back and looked, I don't think I pitched in the eighth inning the entire year in 2008. And that had never happened before me. Like in Houston, I would always go in, you know, in the eighth inning or sometimes even in the seventh inning uh, when maybe our manager didn't have as much trust in the setup guy or, or whatever. But in Philly, it was easy because Ryan Madsen and JC Romero in front of me were just taking care of business every night. So I never even had to really warm up it to go into the eighth inning. So talk to us a little bit, Brad. I'm curious, you, so funny enough, Zach went to high school with you. I actually played high school ball with Lance Berkman. So oh, nice. yeah, old teammate of yours. So, so yeah. super weird circles there, but um, talk to us a little bit about what it's like. You've gotten to be on both sides of that sort of heartbreak, losing a world series, getting swept and in Houston, very first world series Houston had ever been to. Um, they've now gotten off the schneid with that, but what's it like, maybe compare that a little bit, you know, being on the field, watching another team celebrate, and then three years later, getting to do it yourself on the other side. Yeah, well, it, it certainly is a, uh, you know, a high and a low that's uh, hard to describe. Uh, I would say this, I think, you know, when, when I look back at 2005, and, and, and how we were able to get to the World Series, it was such a you know, series of firsts for the Houston Astros organization as a whole. The previous year, we had won our first ever playoff series uh, in 2004 against the Atlanta Braves, and the Cardinals stopped us. But in 2005, we were actually able to advance even further. And I think for a lot of people, maybe the exhale was a little bit too big at that point. It was like, oh, we made it. We did it. Uh, but I learned in 2008, like when we got to the, when we got to the World Series in 2008, 
uh, even though the guys were younger, it wasn't so much a feeling of we did it so much as like, okay, we're, 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 we've gotten to the spot now. Now we really have to make sure we win this thing. Um, it didn't feel good enough just to get there. So um, I think going into it, there was a little bit different kind of feel in the air. But certainly, you know, watching, uh, watching our team get swept in, in 05 and uh, I didn't perform well. I mean, I think pretty much to a man, everybody on our team would say they didn't do their job. And the White Sox probably had a very underrated team. I think when you look back historically, like they were really good that year and they took it right to us. And it was a bitter pill to swallow, uh, certainly an offseason that uh, for me, I just, I just couldn't wait for the offseason to be over to get back to spring training and to start new uh, you know, a new, a, a new year and try and improve upon what we did. 2006 wasn't meant to be, but you know, it's funny because only one team ever ends up winning the whole thing. So no matter how close you get, 29 other teams are going to be disappointed. And uh, I think we felt good overall. I mean, we had to feel good overall about where we got. It was the first ever world series in the history of our franchise, but when you get swept, it kind of leaves a little bit bitter taste in your mouth. And as I said, I didn't perform well down the stretch. So I really didn't have a great taste in my mouth either. But then when you look at 2008, I think, you know, for me, looking back on that, I kind of remember thinking, if I get another opportunity again, I'm going to make sure you're always trying as hard as you can. But I really wanted to make sure that I learned maybe from some of my stakes in 05. And, uh, you know, for me going into 2008, we were all hungry. And, you know, the feeling, as you asked, you know, the way that ended, I mean, it's just total elation. It's what you dream about. And, you know, sometimes, you know, people ask me, like, what, what did it feel like? to throw the last pitch of that world series. What was that sensation like? And I just, it's hard to describe, but I say, you know, listen, I was on the bottom of a pile of 25 dudes, you know, 200 to 250 pounds and, and everyone's jumping on top and pile on and pile on. And, pile. and I was still screaming. I couldn't breathe, but I was still screaming for joy. So I, I don't know, you know, how else to describe it other than like, I really had both the feeling of I can't breathe and I was screaming for joy at the same time. So uh, just total elation uh, in, in that moment. What is yeah, it we, like, Brad, in Philadelphia? Because you have such a passionate fan base. I mean, you've got all of the four major sports. You've got Eagles, you've got 76ers, you've got Flyers, and of course you've got the beloved Philadelphia Phillies. To finally have that parade, you know, down Broad Street, you know, the whole city was practically there. Everybody, you know, got a cough and got the flu and had to miss school that day. <laughs> right, but, right. but to be able to bring that to the, to the city and then also – that after party at Pat the Bat's house had to be incredible, was it not? Uh, no, it, cer it certainly was. Um, you know, I think, you know, kind of looking back on that, uh, the, the parade was crazy. But really, one thing that stood out to me, a phrase that I heard over and over from, you know, just people I'd meet in the street and, uh, you know, people in, in the city of Philadelphia that obviously we just didn't have in Colorado growing up because the Rockies were a new franchise. And, and Houston was still fairly, you know, I don't want to say they're a young franchise, but they weren't like historic, like the Phillies were in terms of the years they've been around. But so many people came up to me in Philly and said, you have no idea what this means for my dad, for my grandfather, my great grandfather, who's dead in his grave right now is thinking about this. So there was like this long lineage of, of, you know, of fans that, that were in Philly that were kind of starving for this. And it had been 25 years, as you mentioned, since uh, uh, anything had been won in, in Philadelphia or, or was it? Uh, yeah. 20, 28 years, 25 years, 25 years. And uh, so the fans were starving for it and they showed up on Broad Street in just crazy, crazy ways. I mean, visually, you know, it's, it's funny. One, I remember going down in the, in, in the float and one of our PR guys turned to me, he's like, it's like we liberated France, you know, or Paris or whatever. He's like, I mean, people are throwing streamers everywhere. I mean, just, you know, it's just a crazy, crazy feeling. But, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, we, the, the night, well, I'll go back for a second, say the night we won when we went to Pat the Bat's uh, 
uh, his party at uh, his, his high-rise condo in downtown Philly. Um, I, I think uh, for me, the craziest part about that was I, I felt like there was at some point maybe 50 to 100 law enforcement, uh, you know, policemen there. And we're looking down, you know, over the rails in Pat's high-rise and there's, uh, you know, there's people out in the streets and there's cars, you know, getting smashed and windows breaking in and everything else. And, and we're all looking at each other like, man, uh, it's strange, you know, I don't want to say anything, but maybe, I don't know if the cops, you know, and one of the cops actually, before anybody said anything, kind of turned and looked at us. And he goes, you know, we're going to let them celebrate tonight. Our job downtown Philly is tough enough uh, when people aren't happy. He's like, well, we'll just let them, you know, kind of do their thing tonight. We'll clean up tomorrow. That made a lot of sense to me. I mean, it was, a, you know, a, a time where people were, uh, I, I don't even want to say it was rioting. It was just joy. It was just people just, just being super happy and, you know, Obviously, one or two people may have taken advantage of that and gone a little too far, but it was it was a pretty amazing sight. Uh, and uh, you know, we were you get so much adrenaline when something like that's happening. Four or five in the morning, I think finally I felt like the first hint of being tired, and uh, I think I slept really, really hard the next day. Talk to us a little bit, Brad, about you had some amazing teammates. You, uh, I mean, you played with a lot of Hall of Famers. I'd love to hear just, you know, some of your remembrances of you were, you were there with the Killer Bees. Uh, you, were, you were a first name Killer Bee at the time, but, uh, you know, with Jeff Bagwell and Craig Biggio. And I've always said, you know, like I said, I, I know Lance and I've yeah. always said I, I'm, I'm shocked that he didn't get more support as a Hall of Famer. I mean, he's got to be one of the top two or three switch hitters of all time. Um, yeah. And literally got no support. But then in Philly, you played with Roy Halladay and some guys like that. I'd, I'd love to just, you know, a little a little reminiscence from you with some of the greats that you got to play with. Yeah, and, and I will throw in another name there. And, and he's on his way up, and I hope he gets there, is Billy Wagner. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, he's a guy that had a lot of influence on me early in my career. And I think, you know, when I got to Houston, there was a level of uh, professionalism and veteranship that um, – it's, it was quite remarkable with, with Biggio and Bagwell and even Brad Osmus just, you know, being on the back of the plane. I remember as a, as a rookie, you know, getting on that plane and it's like you just get in your, your seat and you just hope you don't offend anybody because they're not just veterans. They're like super veteran superstars and you just want to do things right by those guys. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Clemens and, and, and Jeff Kent and, and, and Pettit come over. And really, I just like had a, just a, an embarrassment of riches around me to try and pick, you know, their brain and to learn from. And I think, uh, you know, I really was very fortunate to have all that around me, um, you know, learning from guys it really about how to talk to the media after a good game or a bad game, you know, watching what Jeff Bagwell would do, uh, watching what Biggio would do and say, and just kind of understanding some of the nuances uh, that, that go into being a good professional. And then for, for me, you know, at some point in my career, I was like, you know, I want to be a veteran in this game. I want to be somebody who's around long enough to be able to help out the young guys too and say things in the right way. Uh, and so I tried to learn a lot from those guys. And of course, you had very, very different personalities. Like there's not one common characteristic of a Hall of Famer when you're talking about personalities, because you'll have Jeff Kent, who is not going to, I don't think I said one word to him for two seasons in Houston, other than he probably yelled at me for not shagging fly balls or something during batting practice. But <laughs> that's about it. But, you know, uh, uh, um, Lance and I played uh, cribbage on the airplane, you know, all the time together, just doing goofy stuff. And you know, serious conversations with, with Billy Wagner about how to get right and get prepared in your mind before you go in and pitch and just kind of the whole gamut, but uh, just various personalities. I, I think when I got to Philly, you know, having uh, Roy Holiday there, who uh, obviously Zach knows played, played baseball high school around uh, Colorado. And yes, we took his uh, beloved Arvada West team down and to win state. And so, you know, of course I'll remind him, I, I reminded him of that when he got over to Philly, but you know, not a whole lot needed to be said about that. Um, 
And, uh, you know, Roy was a guy that was probably the hardest working human being I've ever seen in my life. I mean, him and Chase were having these battles about who would get to the field earlier in spring training because it was like Chase always was the guy that got to the field before everyone else. That's what he did. And then all of a sudden, Roy Holiday was the guy that got to the field before everybody else. So it was like they were getting there at like five and then 430 and then four and then they weren't even sleeping. I was like, all right, this is getting ridiculous. But, um, you know, Roy Holiday, just, you know, one of the hardest workers of anybody I've ever been around. Got to play catch with Pedro Martinez when he came over to the uh, to the Phillies in 2009. I remember, uh, you know, just yeah, he he was my catch partner actually. Uh, whoever I was playing catch with, I don't remember when he came over. They got moved, so him and I became catch partners. And the way the ball came off his fingertips, I got to tell you, I'd never seen anything like it. It was like he was throwing at 50%, and the ball would just have this spin and rotation on it coming off his like ski slope fingers that just would. Uh, it would just, it would kind of belittle and just kind of defy gravity. And then all of a sudden he'd break off a changeup on me and wouldn't even tell me. And I'd like whiff it in the air and it would bounce off my shins and he'd laugh. And I was thinking, how is anyone going to hit this thing when I can't even catch it? So um, he was uh, a lot of fun and just, now he was super outgoing, very, very different from some of the other guys and very talkative and always kind of wanting to hang out with the guys. So very fortunate, as you mentioned, just a ton of Hall of Famers, tons of different types of personalities. Brad, I'm interested in your favorite Roy Halladay story. I have one. The morning after he pitched his perfect game in 2010 in Miami. You know, the stadium's empty. It's 1030. No one's there. No one gets there till you know, in the afternoon, and they start to trickle in and then get ready for the game that night at 7.05 or 7.10 or whatever it is. One of the coaches for the Marlins would run the track as his workout for the day. Oh, so yeah. He's on the track, and, and Brad, you remember that Florida sunshine, man. It, it beats down on you hard. Oh, yeah. So it's oh, yeah. way up in the sky, and it's, it's, it's about noon. No, no, it's about 11 in the morning, and it's coming down. It's hot. So he's running the track. He's like, who from Philadelphia is over on that foul line doing this insane regiment of calisthenics and Pilates and core work, and, and it was Halliday. The morning after his perfect game, he's the only Philly in the place doing an entire workout while one of the Marlins coaches is running the track. And there are stories like that throughout his career, Toronto, Philadelphia, you name it. What was maybe one of your favorite ones that really showed his commitment to being as great as he was? Well, I think um, the, the first year he got to Philly in spring training uh, or the first spring training that, that I was there with him, he, uh, I remember um, I came into the clubhouse with uh, Kyle Kendrick, a younger pitcher who was, it was a starter for the Phillies for a while and uh, a real nice guy. Um, and he, but he was kind of trying to find his way in terms of his work ethic and everything else. And um, you know, he got to the field and we, we got there, we got there pretty early that day. And, and, and we saw Roy with a heat pack on and we were uh, and you know, we were thinking he was warming up and he was going to get ready to go out there and play catch. And Kyle was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to beat him out there. I'm going to get dressed and I'm going to, I don't need to warm up or anything. I'm just going to throw on my clothes. I'm going to beat him out there and see what happens. So he goes out there and uh, the pitching coach, Rich Doobie's already out there. And he's like, Doobes, he's like, uh, I'm out here before Doc Holiday." And Doobes is like, what do you mean? He's like, well, he's like, he's still warm. He's still getting hot. And Doobes is like, no, no, no. He already threw his bullpen an hour ago. He actually has a regimen after he throws where he does heat, cold, heat, cold. And he's, he's been done for an hour. His day is over when you're getting here. And I think uh, that, that really hit home with Kyle Kendrick, and uh, who's a, who was a fun guy, like I said. But for a young pitcher to see that, it just kind of smacked him upside the head. Me too, even, actually. I, mean, I, was, I was like, oh, my gosh, he's already, he's already done for the day. Uh, so it was just kind of a, a crazy thing. And I knew at that point, like, we're dealing with a different species of human at this, uh, at this juncture. 
And you had just hilarious teammates in Philadelphia, as you know. I remember being in your clubhouse when you guys would come to Cincinnati. Just some background for our listeners. Brad, of course, played for the Phillies. I was a you know, sports anchor in Cincinnati. I'd come and we, we'd catch up and, and cover the series. The, uh, I was standing there one day and I was like, why is there a Target grocery cart in here? And there's a Target grocery cart. So like Jason Worth can put Shane Victorino in the grocery cart and just like steer him all around the clubhouse. And he almost fell out. It was, it was hilarious. So do you guys still have... <coughs> Zoom calls, do you catch up? Do you keep in touch with the guys? And what is that like to be able to, to keep those friendships going away from the field? Well, you know, I still text with uh, quite a lot of them. Um, and, and actually, I was a, a moderator of a, of a Phillies uh, kind of reunion Zoom call we had, um, oh, a couple months ago. I think you can maybe still find it on phillies.com. And uh, we had a lot of the guys, and we were reminiscing about, uh, you know, our careers in about 2008 specifically. Um, and so it was, it was a chance to catch up with a lot of guys. But you know, it's interesting, you know, sometimes teams will have reunions and alumni celebrations. And, and I will say this about the Phillies, like the Astros do a fine job of that, but the Phillies really go um, out of their way to make the alumni events super special. So uh, you always get like all of us coming back for these alumni reunions. And, and uh, obviously we had some big ones in 2008, and nine to celebrate, uh, you know, those world series in 2009, just getting to the world series. But um, you know, so the alumni are coming back, but uh um, it's funny because we do still stay in touch a lot. The bullpens, <laughs> we still text each other all kinds of, I mean, all, you know, six of us, the six main guys in that pen are still way too um, immature, maybe is the right word, uh, where the things we're texting each other, we're taking pictures of our son's poops and stuff. I mean, I'll just go out and say it. Like, we're, we're still have the mindset of 12-year-olds. So um, we're very much still linked in and, and, and talking to each other and, and you know, Great personalities, relaxed personalities. you got to have them on a team. It's what keeps everybody loose during a 162-game season. But uh, Houston, I, I think Lance Berkman was the best personality out there for sure. And then in Philly, we just had a lot of good personalities. So it was – it was. I was fortunate because – I felt fortunate because we had so many good, uh, you know, loose teammates that would keep me loose as well. Well, Brad, if it makes you feel any better, I'm in a text chain, a text group right now where one of the guys likes to voice memo his farts. <laughs> and sends them out. So if it makes you feel any better, the fact that you take pictures of your son's poops is maybe less disgusting than <laughs> than, than hearing a buddy's fart. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on how you look at it. Well, yeah. maybe so. Maybe so. One's visual, one, you know, you hear. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's great. So Brad, let's go back now. You know, you had so much success, great major league career, as we talked about at the top of the program, you know, second all time in postseason saves. Back in the day at Cherry Creek High School, suburban Denver, that's where you and I grew up. Mark Johnson, your coach, what a legend he is. He's still there. Coach Jay has been there for like 50 years. And I got to tell you, Matt, and talk, talk to all of our listeners, Brad, I don't know if you've ever met an all-time classic like Coach Jay. He's got the raspy baseball voice, and he would work the umpires by saying, hey, Blue, that's old Milwaukee. You don't get much better than that on the outside corner. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He's tremendous. He's tremendous. Tell me how that experience playing for Coach Jay and, you know, competing against guys like Roy Halladay really got you ready to go to Notre Dame and to be able to play collegiately at that kind of level. Yeah, I'll tell you, I think the experience with, with Coach Johnson almost starts when you're, well, it does start when you're in middle school uh, around the Cherry Creek area because uh, the high school kind of has these, um, you know, middle school teams that they assemble together. And uh, the legend of Mark Johnson kind of starts and you know who he is, you know, when you're in seventh grade or maybe even before then, before, you know, for a lot of people, 
But when you're on that seventh grade team and he comes around and everyone's like, there he is, there he is, Mark Johnson, you know, uh, everyone knows who he is because he's already a legend by the time you even get to high school. So his, you know, his pop with people and, and with kids in high school and the things he says, um, they, they go really far. And, uh, but then you realize, you know, as you get older, kind of the personality he has and how he kind of looks out for his players. And, um, you know, he's really somebody that genuinely takes an interest in, in his guys, not just while they're playing for him, but after they play for him. When they go to college, he wants to know how they're feeling and um, what they're going through when they get to professional baseball. And, yeah, Mark Johnson has had a, a lot of guys he's sent to pro baseball, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, we, we, uh, it's been a little while since we talked, but we certainly talk, uh, you know, pretty frequently still uh, about everything. And, and uh, I just think he's, uh, he's one of those guys that, that his authenticity always comes out. And I think when people are around him for a while, and, you know, Coach Jay can talk for a while, but when you get him just, you know, especially to large groups of people, he can go on forever telling baseball stories and showing different hitting drills and everything. And, like, literally he could talk for five straight days and, and just not even take a breath. But when you get him one-on-one, -on -one, he's got this genuine authenticity about him that uh, is, is awesome. And so, um, yeah, for me, getting to play for him and with him and, and the teammates that I had, I think – really prepared me to go to college. I, I, I got drafted out of high school by the Giants, but I got drafted in the 42nd round. And I really didn't have much thoughts of, of playing professional baseball at that time, not just because my signing bonus was an old like Giants t-shirt, but also because uh, I, had, I was pretty raw. I hadn't really started pitching at all until I was uh, you know, later in my high school career. Uh, and so you know, I think going to high school and having competed with uh, the guys that I did, one of my, my battery mates, Josh Bard, he was a kind of, uh, you know, a guy that played in the major leagues for a long time. He's been, you know, as a bench coach of the Yankees last year, he's had a bunch of various jobs in major league baseball, but he was like the first guy ever to come out to the mound and grab my shirt and be like, you got to get mentally tough. And he was a year younger than me at that time. So that took a lot of, you know, a uh, lot of brass to do that. But I remember like hearing things from guys uh, just, you know, with my high school team that uh, were really guys looking after each other and pulling for each other and telling each other how to get better. You know, let's not feel sorry for ourselves. Let's figure out ways to get better. So anyway, Took that to college, and I think it went a long ways at Notre Dame because uh, when I got there as a freshman, I was pretty far behind physically uh, in terms of my pitching ability and everything else. So, uh, but, but coming from Cherry Creek and having to rise through the ranks there helped me you know, kind of rise through the ranks at Notre Dame. So at Notre Dame, you played under Paul Maneri, uh, who's now the head baseball coach at LSU, and I believe your pitching coach was Brian O'Connor, who has That's gone right. to Virginia. Both have won Collegiate World Series, Maneri at LSU and O'Connor at Virginia. Brad, tell us the story. You get to Notre Dame. You're far away from home. You know, we, we go away to college. A lot of pressure, great school. And what, you have like a sore arm or your arm just doesn't have any juice. Last on the depth chart. Yeah. Tell me about just the mentorship from Coach Maneri and Coach O'Connor and, and the mental fortitude they instilled in you to be able to get in the weight room, adapt physically, become a pitcher, and be able to compete in the Big East. Yeah, Zach, that's right. Um, you know, when I got to Notre Dame, I uh, not only was I pretty raw as a pitcher, but I was also battling some, I don't know if it was arm fatigue or what. I, I look back and I, and I think about my shoulder and kind of how it felt. I probably had some rotator cuff issues, uh, but I didn't really rehab it very well uh, before I got to Notre Dame. So I got there and my, you know, if I was throwing 91 in high school, I was probably throwing 87 with no control. Uh, as a freshman at Notre Dame and just getting hit around the ballpark or else walking everyone. And so when they posted the depth chart over the winter, uh, you know, for, for who was going to be on our team in the spring, of course I was going to be on the team, but I was dead last on the depth chart of 13 pitchers. And I remember just looking at that and just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was just like, Oh my gosh. So 
you know, our team's traveling to different places and, and I'm not going with the team. I'm kind of just staying on campus and uh, it really sucked, but um, it did, it did kind of light a fire under me and, and, and pulmonary too kind of pulled me aside. Actually, when I was looking at that death chart, he was there, he's kind of standing next to me and he's like, listen, this doesn't have to be this way. He's like, I know you've got talent. I know you've got potential, but you haven't really honed yourself physically the way you can get into the weight room, work your tail off. Let's see what happens. And by the end of the spring, my freshman year, I got on the mound and, and, and my arm started feeling better. And I was starting to actually close games. Um, I was getting my velocity back 90, 91. And I was, and I was, I was feeling way more confident. And that confidence came from Brian O'Connor, the pitching coach. Uh, now, as you mentioned, the head coach at Virginia. Um, and he was just instrumental for me in my development at Notre Dame. He kind of give it, gave me an entirely new way of kind of approaching the field and like kind of having swagger when you come to the clubhouse. And because and, I don't think I was a really super confident guy going to Notre Dame, to be totally honest. Like I didn't really uh, feel, you know, I didn't maybe have the same level of high school success and have that, you know, five-year track record of maybe some guys. And I said, I got hit around the ballpark a ton when I, when I was there as a freshman in my fall of my freshman year. So I didn't necessarily have a ton of confidence, but Brian O'Connor gave me a lot of confidence. I hit the weight room hard. I went in there at about 183 pounds and, and I remember drinking all kinds of protein shakes and everything. When I was a freshman, by the time I left uh, my freshman year was over, I was about 205 pounds. And uh, then I, I had a great summer playing summer ball, came back as a sophomore and my velocity just kept going up a, a click every couple of months. And uh, my sophomore year still was pretty raw, but was throwing the ball 95 ish. And then by the time my junior year rolled around, I kind of really had perfected or not perfected, but at least really honed my curveball. And now all of a sudden I was throwing 97 with a really good curveball. And uh, my junior year, it started off pretty bad. Uh, my first two games were awful against the aforementioned Pat Burrell's uh, University of Miami Hurricanes, who just throttled us when we went down there. But after that game, things got uh, things you know, calmed down a little bit and I had a, a real good run. Uh, in my, my junior year, which uh, enabled me to be drafted in the first round by the Astros in, in 98. So talk to us a little bit, Brad. We'll fast forward uh, a little bit. So we've talked a little bit about Roy Halladay. We talk a lot on this podcast about kind of off the field stuff, some of the things that maybe, and we'll, and we'll come back to some of the things that maybe you remember and, and enjoy doing off the field today. And even while you were on the field, talk to us a little bit about Roy. He had a, obviously a tragic ending um, to his life and was beloved by everybody, by every account. Um, I would love for you just to kind of maybe talk a little bit about what for you retirement was like, retirement from baseball, you're still with the MLB network on radio and, you know, st still around the game, but I I'd love for you to maybe talk about that. Obviously you can't speak for Roy, but you know, just what you know of him and then how maybe you dealt with that transition. We've talked to a lot of athletes about what that transition is like, and it's all over the map, right? Guys yeah. are different. So I'd love for you just to kind of give your perspective on that. Well, you know, so when I retired, um, for me, it was really important that I had something lined up, uh, not, but didn't have anything to do with baseball. Like I knew I'd probably coach my son a little bit when he got older. He was only three when I first retired. Um, I knew I was going to be involved maybe in some kind of, uh, you know, with the Phillies a little bit, doing some alumni stuff. And, and uh, I've worked with them from time to time too, uh, special assistant things here and there. But I, ne I needed something besides that. So I actually uh, went back and uh, finished my, my bachelor's degree. I, I went to Notre Dame, but I had like, uh, you know, a couple classes left. Unfortunately, I couldn't, the Notre Dame's rule, and this was like true from, you know, Joe Montana, Jerome Bettis to myself, is that you needed to finish on campus. But I wanted to get started even more on a master's program. And so I actually just went out and finished uh, my, my bachelor's degree at the University of Regis in Denver, the last couple classes, just to get it done with. 
And then I wanted to do ancient Roman archaeology. And I don't know if Zach remembers Eric Koble teaching, uh, you know, world history and world geography in high school. I see a shake in your head. I, I, I mean, it is. This guy was Brad, a legend. Brad, you and I sat right next to each other. I don't know if you remember. He was incredible. He had the glasses on and he like, he wore a, a long sleeve white shirt every day, rolled up the sleeves and had yes. a tie on every day that he would, um, he'd unbutton the top button and he'd just yes. leave it out. And this incredible. guy, awesome, Jack. And, and this guy, I'm telling you, he got so animated when he was talking about maps and ancient wars and descriptions of things that are like just were so barbaric and I loved it and I like honestly that got me like I was always thinking if I didn't play baseball I would have probably tried to do something uh in in ancient world history but I didn't just want to read about it I kind of wanted to like you know do something more proactive so I don't know maybe watching too many Indiana Jones movies I ended up uh wanting to do um you know archaeology so I went into ancient Roman archaeology because I figured heck they're all over they were all over Europe and, and everywhere and if I'm if I study them maybe I can kind of bounce around and the summers after I retired, for the first four summers I retired, I went over to, uh, to Italy to do excavations in the summer. And God bless my wife and kids for going over there with me. We'd, we'd stay for about a month. And it was a whole nother world. And I always said there's only two things I've ever done where I could literally just be doing it for 10 hours straight. And I'd have no idea that I was even there. I was like, the time warp, time goes by. So it's fly fishing and excavating with, like, with a trowel in my hand and trying to find artifacts. Like 10 hours could go by in a blink. I wouldn't even know that, that that happened. So anyway, I guess my, my point is that is that is that I had something uh, besides baseball to kind of look forward to and to kind of dive into. Um, and I think, you know, look, I had, uh, as we kind of funnel toward, toward Roy Holiday on this, I, I had my share of injuries. I had uh, 10 surgeries uh, from baseball. And every time you get a surgery, you get a, you get a bottle of pills. And, and you know, and they are, um, they are, I think the more you take them, obviously, since they're addictive, the, the, the more difficult it is to back off to the point where, you know, I'd have a surgery and I'd take them for six, seven days and uh, I'd have, you know, another week or two left and I just have to, you know, flush them down the toilet uh, because I could feel myself kind of getting pulled into um, that addiction that, that's so easy to happen there. And I think, you know, you wake up maybe in the morning and just say, just throw, flush them down the toilet now because uh, you hear stories of people getting addicted to these things and uh, you can see how it happens. Uh, Sadly, in the case of Roy, I think uh, he had a lot of pain. He had his, his share of surgeries, but just a lot of injuries, too, that maybe he didn't get uh, surgeries on. Maybe he didn't get fully repaired, so they kind of lingered into his retirement. And I think he was a guy that was about as sore from all of the things he pushed his body through as anybody upon retirement. And I think it kind of just, uh, you know, he kind of kept on those, uh, those pills, unfortunately, and was never really able to break the habit. And it's um, it's real sad, obviously, that that happened, but I know, you know, how much Roy loved Brandy and his boys, and I know I'm, I'm sure it must have been a really, really, even though we never talked about that, a, you know, a super difficult battle for him. Um, he did have his, his airplane flying, obviously, as a hobby for him. I mentioned the archaeology for me, and that was his hobby, but unfortunately, the mix of those two things uh, at the wrong time, you know, it, it ended up the way it did, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I have nothing but great memories of Roy, and I'm sure that must have been a, a super difficult battle for him in his life. You know, Brad, you bring up a, a really compelling point. I had a, a kidney transplant in March of 2018, and you get prescribed for you oxycodone, which is yeah. a really powerful anti-pain drug. And I had the same experience that you did. I got the pills, I would take them, and it's it's straight up scary. Like the pain goes away like immediately, yeah. like within like like immediately like 25 seconds. You become totally loopy and then 
after a while, you just think to yourself, I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather be in pain. So I just went and threw them away. And just right. stopped it. Well, it's a good move because I think, you know, you get to that point where you, you kind of have to reckon in your own mind, like, do I want to, you know, keep doing this. And, and, uh, you know, even though maybe the pain is subsiding a little bit, I don't know, I, I you know, just, yeah, that's where you just kind of have to flush them because, um, you know, ultimately for me, you know, maybe after my seventh, eighth or ninth surgery, I, I remember it being harder and harder to get rid of those pills when I didn't need them. And that was the scary part for me. I mean, your description is accurate. And, uh, you know, that loopy feeling, you're like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe a couple more days of this, I'll be, you know, and it's just, it's tough. And then all of a sudden you kind of think in your mind, like, man, you can see how people, okay, I've, I've run out my pills. Now I'm going to talk to my doctor and ask him for more. And then that addiction can really take hold. And, and it is a, it is a real thing. So back in the Astros organization, we're, we're kind of on the, on the topic of pain first round pick in 98, you're coming up through the minor league system. And Brad, talk to us about kind of the, the transformation you made in your career when you were trying to snap off those curveballs and you just had pain in your elbow. And then, I mean, I would think for any athlete, it's incredibly difficult to perform at the highest level where you're constantly worried about potentially the thing exploding or getting hurt to the point where you've got to go on the shelf for months or maybe a year. And then what kind of a gift was it to have that minor league pitching coach in the Astros organization come along and teach you the slider? Yeah, Zach, uh, you know, he, so I, you know, I threw that curveball in Notre Dame, as I mentioned, and I think maybe, maybe because you only pitch once a week in college, I was able to kind of get through my outings and get away with it. But you jump into minor league baseball and you're throwing once every five days and you're working on your stuff way more off and you're throwing more bullpens and everything else. And um, I just remember, you know, my curveball being a pitch that, that uh, for me was kind of a double-edged sword. I'd throw it and it would have a good break on it and, and a hitter would swing and miss. But I remember almost every time I'd feel a little bit of pain in my elbow. And what was weird is uh, what ended up happening is my elbow, even though I wasn't tearing any tendons or, or ligaments, uh, I was actually getting the joint very inflamed when I threw it, uh, kind of almost like hyperextending it over and over and over. And it started swelling up really big on me, uh, you know, the night I'd throw and then it would last for a couple of days. And, um, and then that swelling would last longer and longer. And so eventually uh, I just got to a point where I was in the minor leagues and every time I picked up a baseball, my elbow would be so swollen. I couldn't really, uh, you know, make my start. It just, I, I, the swelling eventually starts to affect other things and then you can't even really grip the ball. So um, I was going through this for a year or two and finally, Dewey Robinson, the minor league pitching coordinator, Zach, you mentioned for the Astros, came to me and he was like, look, this curveball just isn't working. He's like, whether it's good or not, it doesn't matter because you can't get on the mound and you can't actually pitch. So um, he taught me his grip on a slider. He shifted my arm, so my arm angle a little bit. So I used to come through with my, uh, my hand very close to my head when my arm went through the, the delivery process. And so we kind of pushed my hand away from my head when my arm path came through. And, uh, and I started throwing the slider and instantly it took pressure off my elbow and felt way better. Um, and the one thing he said about the slider, he's like, listen, don't worry about like, is it spinning right? It's not as much of a finesse pitch uh, as a curveball maybe for you. I want you throwing the heck out of it, throw it hard and that will get the break to go. So that's, I just kind of took it and ran with it. And honestly, within a couple months, it was even better than my curveball had ever been. And I started getting guys swinging and missing that I had never, you know, from a pitching standpoint, I, you know, the swings they were taking, I just remember telling Dewey Robinson, I was like, what did you just teach me? That's the greatest pitch ever. And he's like, well, he's like, if you throw it right, the, the, the grip I taught you, the hitter won't see the slider spin on it. It's a little bit different grip than a typical slider, 
So instead of having that dot that the hitter normally sees when a slider is coming in and that's how they process it's a slider, that dot kind of disappears if you're throwing it right on the grip I taught you. And so that's what the hitters, I was asking hitters in spring training guys on my team, I was like, what are you seeing when you see that pitch? And they're like, well, we're not seeing the dot. And that's why we're, you know, swinging over the top of it. So that gave me a lot of confidence in that pitch and it made my arm feel a lot better too. And turned you into a hell of a good pitcher, <laughs> uh, you know, ultimately, right? I mean, yeah, for, for those who don't know, I mean, Brad had a wipeout slider. And I mean, really, I assume probably changed who you were as a pitcher and probably is what kept you in the league as long as, you know, a decade in the league plus as a, you know, top closer um, in Major League Baseball. So, you know, glad Dewey saw that. Yeah. <laughs> and as an Astros fan growing up, <laughs> I was real glad he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, props to Dewey Robinson, a very underrated uh, – he was a pitching coach for the Astros for a little while too, but uh, underrated in terms of his baseball knowledge, but he really, he really knew what he was doing with the guys. Brad, let's talk about the mental side of baseball. You know, you hear all the time that, you know, there's minor league guys that are, you know, in their hotel room on the road, and they're staring at the ceiling, they're 0 for their last 20, they're worried about, you know, is this ever going to work out? How did you kind of make that – process work for you in terms of becoming mentally tough because you know maybe people think oh brad lidge he's the closer for the astros and that's all he does but you, you had a young daughter at home you had Lindsay at home and whether you're pitching well or not pitching well how do you as as a player leave what happened at the field at the field and then come home and be dad when Avery wants to wake up and go ride her bike or whatever the case may be. How do you separate those two and, and flush whatever happened, good or bad, learn from it and make today today? Yeah, it, it's a great question because I think it's one of the keys to success to, to be able to stay in the major leagues and to be able to not go crazy while you're doing it. Um, it really is hard to leave things at the field on a bad night. And obviously, as a closer over a decade, uh, you're going to have uh, definitely at least a handful, if not many, many more, bad nights as any relief pitcher will. And I think for me, um, early on in my career, I think it really stuck with me more because I, I felt like I was letting, you know, yeah, I had a bad game, but man, looking Bagwell and Bijou in the eye and, and not being able to get the job done for them. Like it was harder for me to see my teammates, uh, you know, have a, have a great game and then not be able to close it out. Uh, and then, you know, maybe I'd occasionally blow in for Clemens or whoever else. And he's every time you go out there, you know, he's going for some kind of milestone, 300 wins or whatever it was. So it always, it always impacted me greatly in terms of letting my teammates down. I always felt worse because of that. But I think at some point along the line, I realized, okay, you, you know, you, you can't make everybody happy. And even the great Mario, aforementioned Mario Rivera, is, you know, gave up a couple blown saves here and there. Like it happens to anybody. Um, and I think I felt like two things needed to happen. Number one, I needed to know and I needed to really reassure myself in terms of, you know, the mental toughness side. Like don't worry about what other people think. Go out there and work as hard as you can and do everything you can each time. And then you've done everything you can do. And as soon as the ball leaves your hand, if you've done all the preparation, you've worked as hard as you can, if a guy hits a home run, he hits a home run. But, you know, as long as you've done everything you can do, what more can you do? So don't worry about pleasing everybody. Just make sure that you've done everything to please yourself. You can look yourself in the mirror at night and feel like you've done everything. Then you can go to bed easy. Uh, and the second thing was, uh, you know, that being said, I also wanted to make sure that every time I had a bad game that I learned something from it so that when I showed up to the field the next day, no matter what, I wasn't going to make that same mistake again. So 
you know, if I gave up a home run on a, uh, on a fastball down in a way that was, uh, you know, a certain count, I, I realized, okay, maybe I stayed on that part of the plate too many times. I threw too many pitches down in the way and the hitter was leaning out that way. And tonight I'm going to make sure if I get the ball again, or I should say, because uh, the, the next day, because I've watched the videos after I threw the next day, if I get the ball again, I'm going to make sure I bust him in. So we can't do the same thing again. I won't make that mistake twice. So for me, there was always kind of this, okay, now that I've processed that and I see why that happened and why the night went bad, maybe I hung a slider. Maybe it's as easy as just saying, I hung a slider to a great hitter. Shoot, Albert Pujols, I hung a slider to him. So that wasn't hard to process in terms of a great hitter. You make a bad pitch, he's going to get you. Okay, tomorrow don't hang a slider to Albert Pujols. I mean, so sometimes it's simple, sometimes it's more complicated, but you always wanted to take something from the field that night so that you could go home and sleep better. And look, even when you wake up the next day, you wake up and you remember, oh, crap, I blew a save. But, you know, it's kind of with you. But when you get to the field, I think over time things start to go away. Uh, the, the more you play in the game, the more you can realize uh, that you just need to get out there and, and, and do everything you can do. And then, you know, stop. One thing that's definitely you see a lot of young guys do, and I was guilty of it too, is picking up the newspaper a lot and reading it and, and you know, reading too much about it and, and uh, hearing a guy's opinion on at some point and Craig Biggio said this to me actually I was re after a bad game my my first year ever in the major leagues uh, first full season 2003 I had a bad game against the Cubs and the next day there was you know the Houston Chronicle was there and I was reading it and was saying something bad about I me mean, Biggio came up and he grabbed the paper and he ripped it in half right in front of me and slammed it down like through the shreds like right on me and he's like don't ever read the newspaper again not ever I was like, okay, geez. So at that point, I was like, holy smokes. But like, you know, Biggio had gone through a lot of like, he had been was, through runs of bad media. He was that subtle. He made sure he, he was just really open to interpretation of what he meant. <laughs> right. I was like, what? Just Craig, stop beating around the bush. What are you, what are you trying to tell me? No, but like he, he had even the great Craig Biggio had taken his share of lumps from the media over time. And I think what his message was, and uh, duh, it should have been obvious, is that you can't please everybody and you're going to have bad games. And if you're invested too much in what other people think, there is no way you're going to be able to get through a season, let alone a couple seasons, let alone 10 years. So somewhere along the line, I learned to just kind of let it go good or bad and uh, just take care of the things you can take care of and, and, uh, and let everything else go. I've always thought that the closer's life is so interesting because like you said, everybody has bad games. I mean, every hall of famer goes over five. I mean, it happens. And with, with four K's in, you know, looking on three of them, you know, on pitches he should have swung at, it happens. The, the difference I think with a close and even starting pitchers, right. The difference with a closer is right. Is that you're expected to come in and your job really is just to get those final three outs. And it is so obvious when a closer fails right? Yeah. Because it's the only spotlight. It's the end of the game. If they walk you off, they walk you off, you know, those kinds of things. I, I, I've always thought that the mental fortitude that a closer has to have is beyond anything. And we've seen, and, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure people have said this to you before, but that Pujols homer, right? I mean, you're, you look at a Wikipedia page and it's going to talk about that Pujols homer. And the reality is, is this is a guy who just passed Willie Mays, you know, as one, and he's literally may, probably the definitely the greatest hitter of his generation and one of the greatest, you know, hitters of all time. And so to me, the fact that you were able to sort of overcome, you know, that day, right? By the way, you guys still won that series. Like everyone likes to forget <laughs> that and you still, and you still went to the World Series. So, you know, it, it didn't change the outcome at the end of the day. But I'm curious, you know, after a day like that, you know, how do you, 
you know, and maybe it's the same thing no matter what, but how do you in a huge moment like that, how do you kind of lace them back up tomorrow, take that deep breath? Cause you know, you're going to get the ball again, right? Yeah, no, listen, it's, and I, and I say what, you know, what I would do, but it's easier said than done. I mean, it, it certainly uh, is something, you know, in a moment like that, I mean, it's going to last for not just until the next day. I mean, it's, it's, you know, because people are asking you about it all off season and then people are asking about it all the next season and, and it just kind of doesn't really ever, go away. So that's a hard thing to, you know, I've seen a lot of closers go out there and give up a big home run. And, and I think that, you know, part of me wants to reach out to him and say, Hey, you know, this is part, if you're a great closer and you're getting the ball in that situation, there's a reason, you know, you are a great closer. So don't forget that. Um, and I think it's easy to kind of, uh, you know, those moments can be really big, but if, if you can figure out a way to kind of isolate it to, to one game, uh, one mistake and try and move forward, I will tell you, after that particular game, and this story is kind of uh, a little bit uh, famous now, uh, one, one way that I got over – well, one way that anybody can kind of get over something like that is having great teammates, right? So we're flying to St. Louis that night, and uh, I'm sulking on the plane. I mean, it's one of those games that you can't really get over that fast uh, as a closer. And I'm pissed off in the corner of the plane sitting by the window. And all of a sudden, the pilot gets on, and, and uh, he says – uh, here we are flying into St. Louis, and uh, if you look out the left side of your plane is the Missouri River. On the right side of your plane, uh, the ball Albert Pujols hit is still flying by the airplane right now. And I was like, what? What did that guy just say? I mean, I thought I was hearing things, right? Like, I was, like, in a bad mental space anyway. And so I stood up, and I was literally, like, about to go up to the cockpit and just wring this guy's neck. And I got in the aisle, and Osmus kind of comes up and pulls my shirt from behind. He goes, hey, I made him say it. It's a joke. Relax. And everyone was kind of looking around like, oh, what's going to happen? All of a sudden, it just hit me. It was like the funniest thing ever. So I started like busting out laughing. And then like everybody laughed. And it was like, it was just this great team moment. And, you know, we had a great guy for doing that, even though it took some serious brass, you know, to, to, for Osmus. Because, I mean, even though he was the veteran and I was, you know, still a young pitcher, I mean, I was ready to wring somebody's neck after that. But it was the perfect thing to say at the perfect time. It broke the tension. And, and Zach, as you mentioned, and, and Matt, as you mentioned, actually, we, we did all of a sudden, you know, go to St. Louis and then win the series. And I think the reason we did is because we all relaxed after that moment. So it's never easy to get over. Uh, you know, um, you're, you very much are isolated out there as a closer. You know, I always say, like, if a team gets shut out, like, you know, and, and they have a really bad game as an offense, who do you go to? Uh, well, everyone got shut out. Nobody drove in any runs. Nobody hit well. So it, the, the blame kind of gets disseminated throughout the lineup. But as a closer, there's only one guy that's out there if it doesn't go right. And so the media is going to go to their locker because it's so, you know, kind of obvious and transparent at that point. So um, it takes good teammates. It takes mental toughness. But you have to kind of create a, a path for that mental toughness. It, it, you know, saying it takes mental toughness is not a lot. There's a lot of guys I know, uh, or it's not enough. There's a lot of guys I know that are mentally tough but maybe something they couldn't get over, you know, has, has really stuck with them. So you have to really get to a point where you're okay just saying, I did everything I could do, and that's it. And then if the, you know, if, if it becomes a big deal, it becomes a big deal, but I can't control that. Uh, I can only control my next opportunity. And as we have talked about, fortunately for me, the next opportunity came uh, in 2008 with the Phillies, and, uh, and that one worked out pretty well. Yeah, and that, that 
that I think, sorry, Zach, that I think really goes to the whole point about how, how great Mariano Rivera really was. Like, if you really think about that, right, closers, again, they tend to have relatively short careers, you know, in general, like most closers burn out in three or four years. They just, it's a tough job. And the yeah. fact that Mo could do it, we had, we had Greg Swindell on last week and he was on, you know, of course, 17 year big league pitcher. And he was on that Diamondbacks team, right after 9-11 when Gonzo hits that little flare, you know, off of Mo to win a World Series. And, and, and same thing. I mean, that could, that could have done something to Mo right there. I mean, that's as yeah. big a moment as it gets. That's one of the most famous hits in baseball history. And what does he go on and do? I mean, he certainly didn't stay in the dumps. And that sticks with you literally all offseason, right? Because he didn't throw another pitch until, you know, February when pitchers and catchers report again. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I know it's it's – uh, it is just uh, the nature of the beast. It's what comes with being a closer on a great team. And, you know, I think it's interesting because we're watching these playoffs now with not a whole lot of fans there. Like, you know, the closers are out there under a lot of pressure because obviously it's, it's the postseason and everyone is watching on TV, but you're not having to deal with the, the pressure of the fans as well, which for a young guy, for a young closer, is uh, the, the fan pressure is also a thing. And then as you get maybe three or four or five years in, you actually kind of embrace that a little bit even on the road it kind of gets your mind where it needs to be but um it's an interesting element right now not those guys not having to deal with the fans as well um but it's all it's all part of it so on that note i'm curious from your perspective brad watching these playoffs in particular so we saw zach and i actually talked about this um on the podcast earlier this morning what do you think like because of the lack of fans right there are some players who I think really feed off of fans. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing great hitters like Christian Yelich just having a terrible season. He'd be the first to admit it. You know, I'm curious just your perspective being around the game. Do you think that that has had a huge effect, or is it just that Christian Yelich just had a bad season? I don't mean to pick on him. Just there've been a lot of guys that way. Like, what what do you yeah. think that effect really has been? Well, it's interesting that you bring up Yelich because we, we actually talked to Craig Council not long ago, and he was talking about how not having those fans there, not having the big spotlight and, and everything else going down the stretch probably did impact him because he's a guy that typically shows up in, in bigger situations. Um, so I think it does impact veteran guys a lot more than young. I think young guys probably, you know, either they don't know the difference or it just enables them to relax in a way they probably never could if all the fans were there. And that's a good thing. Uh, when you become a veteran guy, then you really do use the adrenaline from the fans, you know, especially, uh, yes, especially at home, but even on the road. I mean, when you're at home, you're, you know, especially as a closer, you're running out there and everyone's standing up and, and you feel like you can run through a brick wall. I mean, it's crazy. But then when you're on the road and, you know, everybody's yelling at you and spitting at you and throwing stuff at you and you're warming up, there's also an adrenaline surge that kind of happens, but in, in a way that kind of gets you locked in, like you're ready to kind of go to battle in, in, in a certain way. Um, and so as a veteran guy, you miss those things. And I think that's why you saw some veteran guys and some veteran closers this year not be able to go out there and perform the same way they normally do, even veteran closers um, having a little bit more difficulty because they're used to that, that energy around them, that, that din and that noise that kind of gets them locked in. And all the fake noise in the world can't, you know, create, recreate that for a closer who's been closing for several years. I don't care what a stadium tries to pipe in. It's, it's different visually and, and, and people know it. And talking about those young guys, I'm, I'm curious. So we saw it, it, it right on exactly what you were talking about. Luis Robert yesterday hit a ball a thousand miles. I think that thing's it's maybe next to Pujols' ball still <laughs> going maybe. Um, and then, you know, we saw Tatis last night with that kind of pretty epic bat flip 
walking down the line, looking into his own dugout, looking into his own dugout, to be fair. Um, I'm curious your perspective. Like you, you were kind of in that generation that I think was sort of right between the, you know, old school guys coming into now this very electric, um, I think incredibly talented, you know, young crop of baseball players. What's your perspective on the, the kind of uh, showmanship um, maybe that we're seeing from some of the young guys now? Well, it's, it's certainly a double-edged sword for me. Like, like part of me, uh, like when I watched Tatis flip his bat and kind of walk there, you know, first base or Marcelo Zuna, you know, kind of stop on his run to first base and take a selfie of himself. And they can, part of me is like, oh, how dare they? They're going to get drilled the next time they come up. But then a part of me also understands, you know, that's just that they're not showing up the pitcher. That's just kind of where they're at and where baseball's at. And then, and then even farther beyond that, I realize and I can recognize that, that baseball needs that. Uh, when you're going against the NBA and the NFL and their ratings keep going up and baseballs are not doing well and you realize probably half the problem is this, the lack of celebrations or that everything needs to be kind of constrained to old school, you realize that it's probably, you know, me and everyone else that needs to be able to move on and, and realize that for baseball to thrive, we've got to take advantage of these young, super energetic players. We've got to highlight that. And it's, you know, and you move on and you say, okay, whatever feelings I have of like, you know, this guy shouldn't show up to that's uh, that's something that's kind of dying now. And you're right. I was kind of between that old school and certainly played with very old school guys. Uh, and then also being in, you know, playing with some new school guys that, that would do things very different. And uh, I've kind of, uh, you know, had to evolve my way of thinking on that a little bit and realizing what's best for baseball in the future is for kids to see, you know, on a three Oh count, Fernando Tatis at a grand slam, you know, he could have took, took ball four and uh, the old school guys would have been happy, but you know what? Kids across America that are Tatis fans love that moment, and they're going to watch more Tatis, and they're going to watch more baseball because of that. So that's a good thing for the game. Also, by the way, he's still got to hit that pitch out of the ballpark. Yeah, I <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd, love, I'd love Brad to just get a feel for um, what, was your, like, off, what was your life like off the field as a player? As, as a ball player, you, you obviously, and, and on some great teams with some great teammates, I, you obviously had opportunities to go to children's hospitals. You had all kinds of opportunities to be in the community. I know how great the Astros are with that. I'm sure the Phillies were as well, probably the Nationals in your short stint there. Um, yeah. what, are, what are just some of those moments that stood out to you? Maybe that were some pinch me moments of, I can't believe I'm getting to do this just because I play baseball every day. Um, yeah, I mean, there were certainly, uh, well, I, I would say kind of hitting the first aspect of that, kind of being able to help, uh, you know, people in, in need and, and, the, the Children's Hospital Philadelphia CHOP, I worked with quite a lot when I got to Philly. Um, and, and just kind of, you know, going into the PR room and talking with some of those kids before the game and just how excited they would get to see a guy walk in there in uniform was uh, always for me felt very rewarding to be able to kind of help them. And, and just, you know, yes, in Houston, we visited the, the hospitals there as well at different times on caravans or whatever else. And all those things really, when you look back, they, they really, you feel so happy that you were able to be a part of that because, I think for anybody that, that goes through a career and doesn't take part in some of those things, you probably really missed out on something because when you retire, you don't have, you know, quite as much of an impact when you're not in uniform. So you have a very limited window to make that big impact. Um, and then of course, uh, you know, as, as a player, some of the things we were able to kind of do uh, because we were players and, and some of the things we were able to see and uh, you know, people we were able to hang out with was, was really rather really rather remarkable. I mean, I got to have, you know, lunch with uh, lunch or dinner with three different presidents. I mean, that doesn't uh, happen very, very often. I don't think so. So some of those things are, are uh, 
pretty pretty amazing. And, and of course, I've got you know I look back and you know people come down into this this room you guys are seeing. I've got some pictures hanging up of some of that stuff, and they're like, "When did you meet you know Obama? When did you meet Bush? Like all, you know all these different things." And uh, they're they're pretty amazing stories. So we're, we're super fortunate as ballplayers to be able to have uh, the privileges we have to be able to play the game. But man, I'll tell you what, with all those privileges, if you didn't do something to give back a little bit. Uh, you'd feel uh, it would feel pretty hollow at some point. Tell me about the adrenaline when you get to be in the room with a president and, you know, yeah. you know, regardless of politics, to be able to ask a president a question or, you know, what did you ask President Bush? President, is it President H.W. Bush and George W. Bush and Obama? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. What did you ask them? Um, well, I didn't. Uh, so we were having lunch with, uh, uh, with, with Bush senior uh, uh, and, and, uh, that was in Houston and he has a, you know, his kind of a, it almost looks like a mini white house in, in Houston to be able to have uh, lunch there and uh, you know, talk with him a little bit. He, he wanted to talk baseball. He wanted and, and we kind of like were walking through this hall and he had some, some memorabilia on his walls. You know, I've got these baseballs hanging on mine. He, he had like, you know, swords from like uh, the, the premier of uh, you know, Saudi Arabia or somebody with diamond encrusted crazy, you know, cool stuff like real, real stuff you put on your walls. Right. So, um, so we asked, I asked him about some of that and, and uh, you know, we asked him about some of his hobbies and um, you know, it was just, he was such a down to earth guy. And I have to say uh, W as well. Um, after the world series in 2008, I got a phone call um, on my, on my cell phone and, and uh, you know, somebody said, Hey, this is so-and-so uh, press secretary from the white house and, and uh, or not press secretary, but press somebody. And, and the, and the president of the United States has invited you to come out and have dinner with him on, you know, December or whatever. And I was like, okay, this is, this is totally a prank call. And I'm just, I'm going to figure this out at some point. And, you know, I kept going and, you know, I got a, I got a ticket and I was like, man, somebody really, I'm going to fly out to DC and, and, you know, somebody's just gonna be like, ha ha, I gotcha. But I uh, ended up that, you know, listen, W is such a, a fan of baseball, obviously part owner, of the, part owner of the Rangers at some point, but such a knowledgeable baseball guy. So it was me and, uh, and, and four other players uh, with our wives uh, sat, uh, you know, in, in the green room and got to have dinner uh, with, uh, with President Bush and Laura Bush. And it was uh, uh, a remarkable experience. I mean, we got to hang out with them the whole night. It was kind of toward the end of his presidency before uh, Obama was going to get in there. And so he was very laid back, very relaxed. And uh, we really got to talk about a lot of fun things. Of course, Lance Berkman was telling him crazy, ridiculous stories because that's what Lance does. And he had Bush and stitches. It was awesome. Uh, and then we got to go into the Oval Office and look at the Resolute desk. And, uh, you know, he got to point out some of his favorite things as president that, uh, that he surrounded himself with and, and just have like, an, honestly, a, a very genuine conversation. I was really surprised and really impressed with that. Uh, and then because we won the World Series in 2008, we got to uh, hang out with Obama in, in 09. Uh, and that was a totally different experience. I mean, you know, he was talking about his basketball game the whole time and how he would post up Jimmy Rollins and dunk on him. I mean, it was, you know, he had a lot of, he had some real good swagger himself. So it was just very different experiences, but obviously remarkable men. And it was a, a real privilege uh, to be around the, 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 I have just so much respect for the office of the president of the United States of America to be around those guys was incredible. Yeah, Zach, you don't know this, but um, my wife, Kara, her dad uh, grew up in Midland where the Bush family is from essentially once they moved to Texas and he and G George HW senior are very close to the same age. Um, or no, he and W are very close to the same age. And then his father was about the same age as George HW. And they, they coached opposing little league teams together. So my father-in-law used to play against W 
and then their dads were the head coaches against each other in like small town Midland at the time out basically in the dusty oil fields. So, you know, Texas, as funny as it is, and I know you know this from living in Houston, giant state, small town, everybody kind of knows everybody. And, and Lance, I'm sure tells some of those stories too, just growing up in Austin. Um, he was, you know, around W as governor um, at the time. And then my, my, my sister-in-law went to high school with uh, the Bush twins. So it's funny and they, that you mentioned that. So I'm not surprised at all that you got a phone call from the president's office because he is, that, that's how they are. They're just, they're just good old down-home Texans. And it's fun to hear that even as president, um, you know, it was the same way. Yeah. yeah, George W. Bush has, you know, Brad, you talk about hobbies in retirement with you with the, the archaeology. George W. Bush has become an incredible painter. Yeah, I know, I've seen those paintings. I, I, I mean, I'm just blown away. Like, that's legitimately incredible artistic talent. Like, that's not just a hobby. He's actually really, really good. Yeah. Yeah, and he's doing Brad, the ones it, of the, like, uh, vets, and he was doing these series, right? The vets one, I think, is going to be in a book that's about to come out, like, in January or something. Yeah. And I believe, I believe he would send the paintings of the fallen soldiers to the families that he sent off to war. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. So, Brad, uh, Matt coaches Little League. I coach Little League. I think you've worked with your son, Rowan, in Little League. Yeah. What can we do just in Little League today, maybe not on our teams, but just as a society to make Little League baseball as great of an experience as we possibly can for the kids? Well, it's a, um, that's a great question, and I get asked this a decent chunk of times. And I would say put as many games into practices as you possibly can play for bubble gum, play for packs of cards. I bring every single practice I go to, I bring a bunch of packs of baseball cards and a bunch of bubble gum and kids can take their pick on what they want. But we have so many different contests. You know, we work on skills. We take our batting practice. We do some pitching drills, but then we always take half a practice and do like, you know, a hitting contest or throwing contests, or, you know, I put up a T at home plate and I say, if any of you can hit a T, you get double the pack of cards today or whatever, uh, if you've already got one. So, I run a ton of little like contests with fun prizes because I think keeping kids interested and motivated, even if it's something as silly as a pack of cards or gum, it really goes a long way. And I, I've said this before, like I wasn't the best little league player. I wasn't even really the best, like, you know, middle school player or high school player or anything like that. But I, had, I always had a lot of fun. I had good coaches that made fun games and that kind of stuck out to me. You know, I think for, for little leaguers nowadays, you know, they get, they can get thrown a ton of information. Like, probably too much information for, for their age and like all these different hitting mechanics and drills, stuff that we never had growing up, but it makes them uh, reach a level of, of understanding very quickly, but then oftentimes they can peter out after that. So kind of a gradual intake of information combined with a lot of like fun contests and games is I think is the right way to do it. It keeps kids very interested and it doesn't overload them either. Yeah. Also funny uh, at our little league, you, you were on the same staff with Chad Qualls at some point in your career, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah. So Chad is actually, I think a year, his son is a year older than mine or maybe even two and coached my son one season. So funny and really, really weird. All these odd circles, Brad, apparently we may have been like brothers in a, in a prior life or something. Cause we have some odd <laughs> connections. I'm realizing. Yeah. Serious circles going on here. Well, that's, well, if you run into Chad, tell him, Hey, I actually, uh, uh, we haven't we haven't talked to each other and probably you know we, we actually were talking to each other quite a lot for a while but we're trying to get a, a big golf reunion going with uh, the Astros bullpen guys Dan Wheeler as well so we'll see how that pans out 
Yeah, for sure. And I have a funny uh, Lance Berkman story for you. So in Austin, so we, we both went to Austin High. He actually only went for two years and then realized that our head coach was not going to get him where he wanted to go. And he and his dad moved to a, a different high school. And and to be fair to Lance, too, he actually was not recruited at all out of high school. He, he basically went to Coach Graham at Rice and essentially said, I want to play for you. And Coach Graham gave him a chance. Next thing you know, he's an All-American and, you know, the, the rest is history. But he played at Austin High, which is right on, if you've been to Austin, it's right on Town Lake, the river that kind of runs through. It is not a lake. I don't know why we call it a lake, but the river that runs through the center of Austin and the baseball field did not have a fence on it. And I, they, for whatever reason, I pitched really good batting practice. So I used to throw BP to Lance. We were the same age. Um, he made varsity as a freshman. I made it as a sophomore and I would throw BP to him. And when he would hit from the left side, he would try to hit people running on the hike and bike trail um and he we ran out of we would start to run out of baseballs because he would literally hit them into the lake i don't know 550 600 feet away not granted on the on a roll sometimes but anyway he was a the i'm sure you you and i could tell a million stories you have even more from from many many years together but he was a trip even back then well that's awesome yeah one of the better personalities of of any player i've ever i've ever been with oh yeah Oh yeah, for sure. So Brad, as we kind of kind of wrap up, we ask our guests this question. If you were to write a letter to yourself now and you read it before you make your major league debut, Ooh. what would it say? What kind of wisdom would you give to yourself before you're about to embark on this journey? Mm. I would probably try to explain somehow that nothing is as bad as it seems and nothing is as good as it seems. Uh, to try and just kind of have an even keel uh, throughout. I mean, I say nothing as good as it seems. Maybe winning the World Series was as good as it seems. But, you know, day in and day out, um, try not to stress over the highs and lows. Uh, be humble in the high periods. Be, you know, understand the low periods will, will pass. Uh, because I think um, being in the moment, going through those, is, it's a little bit trickier. So I guess that's probably the first thing I'd start with is, like, uh, just try and remain as even keel as possible and, uh, you know, uh, understand you're going to have difficult times, but they will, they too shall pass. And what's the coolest thing you got out of one of those caves when you went on those excavation trips in Italy? What's the <laughs> best thing you found? Um, that's a good question. We, well, um, I, I don't know if it's to say it's a tie. It kind of depends on what you like. I found some really cool uh, ancient Roman coins, uh, a lot of ancient Roman pottery with like stamps on it where people would like, you know, carve in there or where people would carve in their name and then put like their stamp logo on it. Like we would today, like a, you know, stamp your car logo on your car. Uh, and then uh, a lot of uh, like jewelry we found in this ancient drain pipe in this ancient Roman bath. We found tons of like rings and earrings and jewelry that got like washed in there. So it really gets you like this connection to the people that would have been in there because you're actually looking at their like jewelry uh, that they would have worn. Um, uh, let's see a lot of, uh, uh, like lead bars and stuff that they would use to kind of like trade and barter with just kind of create like nails, big copper nails, big iron nails, like all kinds of different things. Um, so just a whole, I mean, a whole host of different types of things. I, as an archaeologist, it's funny because I always love the artifacts themselves, but the, the main directors would always be concerned mostly with like the, the, the superstructures, like where find the walls, you know, find the, the boundaries and the borders of this, you know, structure we're coming down on. That's more important. And, you know, but uh, for me, pretty much uh, all parts of it are just fascinating. It's really yeah. fun in Philadelphia by the Liberty Bell and the Constitution Center and Independence Hall. 
they still have excavations there and find incredible stuff from back during the Revolutionary War and the, you know, the creation of the country in 1775, 1776. You, you go into this uh, Constitution Center and there's like a, a rum bottle from people, you know, having a drink after, you know, trying to draft the Declaration of Independence or old school shoes, old school coins. And they're still finding stuff in Philadelphia by that area. And actually right by the Liberty Bell, they had to kind of wall off an area because there was um, uh, the, you know, structure of, you know, the old like White House, you know, the first one. It's fascinating. It's really interesting. Well, I'll tell you one more, you know, you you got me thinking a little bit and there's one more kind of thing that I think kind of describes the nature of, of being in Italy also, because, you know, that, that whole like cultural experience was crazy, but as much as, you know, they love, uh, you know, the different things that are passions and things they have there, they're olive oil and their olive trees are like, uh, a sacred thing over there. In fact, every single olive tree has to be uh, GPSed when they put it in. The coordinates have to be mapped out. You're not allowed to have one uh, unless you do. And some of their olive trees are 600, 700 years old. And we were actually doing an excavation where we had to move one because it was kind of in the path of where we were going. That was a big process with the government. We actually were able to remove it and relocate it. It was a 600 year old uh, olive tree, but nobody really knew that until we found a piece of pottery in its roots that had got tangled up when the tree was first grown. And it was a piece of, it was like a medieval shard of pottery that, you know, was from about uh, 1350 or 1400. So uh, it just goes to show like how old stuff is there. Like there's just a random olive tree you're coming across that's 650 years old. Everything is just so old in Italy. So it's a, it's a fun cultural experience that way too. Yeah, we got to go to Egypt uh, last December. Have you, have you gotten the chance to go there? No, I would love to, but I have not been there. You gotta. It's um, so I, I got to go on a delegation with the city of Austin. It was actually a fashion thing. And um, when you are standing in Giza and you touch one of those pyramids, you want to talk about, you know, <laughs> it's not winning a World Series. I, I, I'll, I will give you that. But, you know, those moments, those like pinch me moments of, oh my God, like, and you can see what that thing is and, and literally go, I, I do not understand with the technology they had how this happened and you talk about them still finding things literally in Egypt every single day. They're just pulling stuff out of the ground left and right. And when you think about King Tut, right? So his his tomb wasn't found until like the 1920s. And that's, you know, essentially 5,000 years from the time that he, you know, had passed away. And when you think about where it was found, it was literally found in the Valley of the Kings where it's like, well, here's Ramses the second and here's this one and here's this one. And his was right in the middle of all of it. And yet it took 5,000 years to find it. Right. I, it just, that whole concept of, and, and I never really had much interest in archeology span until going to Egypt. And then I, you know, you want to read every single book and understand everything about every Pharaoh and, awesome. and all of that. So you, you got to go. It, if you yeah. get the opportunity, take the kids. It's, it's this really, really fascinating, amazing place. Yeah, we'll do. It's amazing how much is still out there, right? I mean, there's oh, still right. stuff to be discovered. Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Brad, we can't thank you enough for taking the time with us on the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. It was a great discussion. I had a lot of fun. Hope you did as well. Absolutely, Zach and Matt. It was a, it was a pleasure. A lot of fun catching up with you guys. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We're on our initial descent into St. Louis. On the left side, you'll see the towns dotting the Mississippi River. On the right is the bomb that Albert Pujols just hit at Minute Maid Park off Brad Lidge. It's still going. Can you imagine that? Being on the flight, you are just sulking and mad 
And Brad Osmus, the catcher, just goes to the pilot to just pour salt in your cuts. That's hilarious. And that's uh, why mean, they went, and I believe that's why they came back and closed out the Cardinals on the road because they were able to laugh about it. Everybody's rolling by the time you get to the hotel. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is being a big leaguer, look, and especially as a closer, right, the, the number one thing a closer can do is just you, you got to forget yesterday, right? And whether it was good or bad, you get, you got to forget it, even if it was really great. And, you know, I understand the like sulking and all of that, man, you got to love it though. And I love that he's willing to tell the story. I love that he's willing to sort of own, you know, the probably what was the worst day of his life from a pitching perspective, you know, and, and, and joke about it now and, and probably then. And by the way, he was the young kid, right. You know, with a bunch of future hall of famers on that team and, you know, Brad Ausmus, you know, future big league manager and everything else. So, you know, just a, just a great story about resilience and, you know, owning all of that and, you know, going from a 2005, you know, that opportunity to then, you know, being the guy raising your hands and fists in the air and being at the bottom of a dog pile in 2008, um, you know, to me is about resilience, which I know is what you love about him too, when he was younger. I think it's incredible, the story, kind of the juxtaposition between Lidge and Roy Halladay, who we talked about in the podcast, went to a rival high school in Denver. They were, you know, on two really good baseball teams, competing clubs, and just the difference between the two, but they both ended up on the same team. You know, Halladay is a starter, Lidge on the back end, closing the deal. You know, Halladay was a first-round pick of Toronto right out of high school, 1995. That fall of 95... Lidge went to Notre Dame and turned out to be, as he told the story, number seven on the depth chart, pitching arm, just didn't have anything. And he was able to really live in the weight room, develop the velocity, develop the secondary pitch with the curveball. And then in two and a half years, he was a first round pick as well by the Houston Astros and then developed that slider in the Astros organization. So I just think it's incredible when you look at really any sport, but in particular baseball, between 16 and 21 or 22, maybe sometimes even 23, because you have guys that don't make their major league debuts until they're 25, just the development that can happen and, and the work ethic of some of these guys. And, you know, I, I, I take it back to Joey Wendell, you know, of the Tampa Bay Rays right now. Does Joey, did, did, did God, you know, sprinkle a bunch of dust on Joey Wendell and say, I want to make you God's gift to baseball? I don't know if he did. And to his credit, he makes winning plays that are derived from effort, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think that the thing that, you know, Brad exemplifies, Joey Wendell exemplifies, a lot of those guys is, I think we, we use this term God-given talent a lot. And yes, that's true. You don't make it to be a big league baseball player, NFL, NHL, whatever the case may be, without, without a lot of God-given talent. But at the same time, I think what people forget is these guys also, and, and women, by the way, I keep saying guys, but women athletes too, um, they work harder than everybody else. They are the first ones in the gym. And, and by the way, that starts when they're young. Um, they're, the, they're the kids who aren't on the, on the Nintendo Switch, right? They're the ones who decide to go out to the baseball field or throw a football with dad in the street or whatever, and they love it. And it starts with that. It starts with love of the game. And then you realize that you got some talent and then you, you know, you have your coaches and you listen to your coaches and you just outwork everybody. And I think we forget sometimes that that resilience, that, you know, that ability isn't just handed 
to you, right? You, in order to be that level at that level and to be able to, you know, make a living playing a kid's game, you got to be not just better than everybody on the field, but better mentally. You got to be better in the weight room. You got to be better, you know, at, at, at waking up when your alarm goes off, you know, all of those little things that go into it. And I think, I think Brad really does exemplify that from his years at Notre Dame, right? Of, of going from basically the worst guy on the staff, you know, to a first round draft pick, you know, and then, and then the, the, the second leader in saves all time behind the great Mariano Rivera. I think it's just a testament just to, you know, that hard work and effort. And, you know, I, I hope he's proud of that every single day, you know, that that's what he, that that's what he was, right? Our thanks to Brad Lidge on the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. Check it out where you get your podcasts. Give us a like, maybe subscribe. It was great to have you aboard. We look forward to having you on the bus for a long, long time. We'll see you next time.